Hello and thank you for watching. This is going to be a very important and significant show today. We are very honored that Mr. Hugh Owen was able to join us from Virginia. Before I read his bio to you and introduce him formally, I just want to encourage you uh, to check out the first interview that we had here on Restoring the Faith with Mr. Hugh Owen regarding the dogma of creationism. I learned so much from that show. I didn't even get to conduct the interview. It was Joseph who was here. I was out of town. Uh, It was a one-on-one interview, and Mr. Owen was actually here in the studio. Today, he's joining us via Skype, and we're going to bring him in. He's prepared a presentation that you're not going to want to miss. Today, we're going to be talking about Black Lives Matter, Antifa, racism, but in a larger context, in the context of proper theology, proper cosmology, proper anthropology. Um, and there's there's going to be a lot covered here. I think he's prepared like 100 plus slides. We're going to breeze through them. I have 11 questions to ask Mr. Owen, and uh, we're going to do that. So let me bring him in. Here's the side-by-side view. So you can see Mr. Hugh Owen, who is the convert son of Sir David Owen, former Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations and Secretary General of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. This is his father. Hugh attended Princeton University, where at the age of 18, he was baptized, confirmed, and made his first Holy Communion in the Princeton University Chapel on the Easter Vigil of 1972. Hugh's wife, Maria, was a member of the first class of women at Princeton. Okay, so they're both very accomplished. I did not go to Princeton. I went to a state school in Texas that we don't need to talk about. Uh, She and Hugh were married in 1973, and Maria made her profession of faith in the Catholic Church in 1975. Hugh received a BA in Honors in History from New York University, an MS in uh, Education and Supervision and Administration from Bank Street College of Education in New York City. He received a permanent license to be a principal or superintendent of schools in the state of New York. Between 77 and 91, Hugh worked as a teacher and administrator of several independent schools and served as a school evaluator for the Middle States Association and as a member of the Executive Committee of the New Jersey Association of Independent Schools. But most interestingly, for the past 15 years, Hugh has dedicated his life to the service of the church as a writer, editor, teacher, and lecturer. Hugh has written numerous books and articles on Catholic and secular topics. His books and articles have been published by the Catholic Distance University, Human Life International, which we had uh, Raymond uh, D'Souza from HLI uh, in studio as well. Seton Homeschool, the, uh, the Apostolate for Family Consecration, Latin Mass Magazine, and many other publications. We are lucky to have you, uh, sir. Could you, uh, could you just pray? Let's pray the Golden Arrow Prayer. In nomine Patris et Filii, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. May the most holy, most sacred, most adorable, most mysterious, and unhonorable name of God be praised, blessed, loved, adored, and glorified in heaven, on earth, and in hell, by all God's creatures, and by the sacred heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in the most holy sacrament of the altar. Hugh, amen. Hugh, thank you so much for joining us. I want to get right into the show because I know you've got a lot to say, and I just want to let you know lots of people are already watching live, and we are going to take your questions for you who are watching live. Thank you so much for joining us. But I want to ask you first and foremost, can you, can you explain to the audience why and how of all the things in the world that you could um, spend so much time uh, dedicating, but you've spent your life defending the traditional Christian doctrine of creationism. How did that happen? It really goes, goes back, back to, to my ancestors, my, ancestors, my 
grandfather, my father's father was a Baptist minister in Wales, and my father was brought up in a very conservative Christian home in Wales and was brought up to believe in most of the tenets of traditional Christianity. But when my dad went to university in England in the late 20s and early 30s, secular humanism reigned supreme and evolution was the unquestioned dogma, of course, the foundation for secular humanism. And so like so many other people then and now, my father was robbed of his faith by this secular evolution-based secular humanist indoctrination that he received in university. And uh, as a secular humanist, he completely lost his faith in Christianity, went to work for the United Nations, uh, became an assistant secretary general, then co-administrator of the United Nations Development Program. And after 25 years with the UN, he retired, was knighted by the Queen of England, for his work at the UN, but could see that all the problems of the world were much worse than when the United Nations was started. And when he turned to the intelligentsia to understand why this was so, the answer that he got was that the United Nations was not focusing on the root cause of all the world's problems, which they said was overpopulation. Too many people that was the reason why there were so many uh, economic and social problems, uh, pollution and all these other problems. And so they said, if we cut down on the number of people, we'll have enough to go around. All our problems will be solved. And so my dad accepted to become the first ever secretary general of International Planned Parenthood Federation at the very time when IPPF changed its position on abortion and became the world's number one provider of abortion as well as contraception and sex education. And he held that position for just about a year when he died unexpectedly of a heart attack in London when I was just 16 years old. And uh, his death precipitated my conversion to the Catholic faith because I had been brought up a secular humanist. No Bible, no prayer, no church, nothing. And yet, um, after my father's death, uh, by the grace of God, I received the gift of faith. And less than two years after my father's death, I was baptized, confirmed, and made my first Holy Communion as a Catholic in the Princeton University Chapel, where I was enrolled as a freshman. But when I was received into the church, the chaplaincy at Princeton University was run by Jesuits, and the Jesuit priests who received me into the church gave me a book so that I could learn the doctrines of the Catholic faith, and the book that they gave me was the Dutch Catechism, the infamous Dutch Catechism, which we prefer to call the Dutch Cataclysm. <laughs> this, this, is, this is the one that's written about in so many... Uh, I mean, Taylor Marshall writes about the Dutch Cataclysm. I think I've read about it with, with Demetay. I mean, this is this is the actual one that you had to read? Absolutely. Translated into English, but um, it, it did it, uh, incalculable harm to the faith of, of countless hundreds of thousands or millions of, of Catholics all over the world. And 
the theme that runs through the Dutch cataclysm is that we are in a scientific age and science has given us a new and deeper understanding of all the doctrines of the faith so that we can understand and appreciate our faith in a much deeper and better way. And with this very attractive sounding theme, the author's proceed to sow doubt in the mind of the reader about everything you can imagine from the existence of angels, the existence of Satan, the historical reality of Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. the <laughs> just about every doctrine you can imagine is called into question in the Dutch cataclysm in the name of science. And of course, the the real theme that runs throughout is evolution. We've evolved into this new situation where we have this new and better scientific understanding of everything. Mm -hmm. And so with this new scientific understanding, we can, uh, in a sense, um, reinterpret the Bible and the tradition of the church in in a new and better way. But that new and better way turns out to be a contradiction to the tradition of the faith on all kinds of very fundamental doctrines of faith and morals. And it's it's a miracle that I survived the Dutch cataclysm and came into the church at all. But by the grace of God, after a, a period of, of some time, I I came to the realization that that this idea that science could teach us something that would contradict the teaching of the church in faith or morals that had been handed down from the apostles, it was, it was impossible. It could not possibly be true. And when I came to that realization or began to come to that realization, I had a desire implanted in my soul to discover for myself where the truth lay in regard to this molecules-to-man evolution hypothesis. And so there was a period of about 10 years when I sat at the feet of every Catholic expert I could find and and read everything that I could on the creation-evolution controversy from the perspective of theology, philosophy, and natural science – And at the end of those 10 years, I I came to the conclusion that the emperor of evolution was not wearing any clothes. There there actually weren't any sound arguments in favor of this idea that some molecules turned into human bodies through hundreds of millions of years of the same kinds of material processes that are going on now. Even though I had been brought up to believe that, And until I was about 30 years old, I had never met a single human being who had ever tried to defend any other view than that molecules to man evolution view. But what I then realized is that this molecules to man evolution mythology was the reason why the Christian faith that had been held by all of my ancestors up into my father's generation had been totally destroyed. 
so that in my father's generation, there was scarcely one person in my entire family on either side of the family who had retained any faith in Christianity at all. Okay, that's a bold and claim. So, I, I just want to repeat that for the audience. Hugh Owen is saying that the misunderstanding of creation theology is the heart of, is the root cause of atheism, the root cause. And, and, and the foundation of it. So even though we might say there are many causes of atheism because of our fallen nature, we, we have many reasons why we might like to be atheists or think that it would be convenient to be atheists. But the only way that it's really been possible for modern people to be confident atheists is because of evolution, is because of this this conviction that molecules to man evolution is a genuine scientific explanation for the origins of man and the universe. And when we realized, when, when I say we, I mean my wife and I and, and, and close friends and priests who who shared this interest and this passion of ours, when we realized that the last time the magisterium of the Catholic Church had spoken on the topic of evolution, which was in the encyclical Humani Generis of Pope Pius XII in 1950, when we realized that Pope Pius XII hadn't actually given permission to Catholics to believe and teach evolution, that he had reminded the bishops of their duty to teach that all of Genesis is true history and that every word in the Bible is true, whether it speaks about history, natural science, geography, or any topic whatsoever, not just matters of faith and morals. And when we realized that the only permission that he gave was for Catholic scholars to examine the evidence for and against the evolutionary hypothesis, that was when we resolved by the grace of God to, to found an apostolate that would provide a forum for Catholic theologians, philosophers, and natural scientists all over the world who adhered to the traditional Catholic doctrine of creation and who could expose mm -hmm. the fatal flaws in this molecules-to-man evolution mythology in its theistic form as well as in its atheistic form. And that's why we founded the Kolbe Center, which was providentially incorporated by the bureaucrats in Richmond, Virginia, yeah. on the feast of our principal patroness, the Immaculate Conception, in the Jubilee year 2000, almost 20 years ago. Wow. Okay, so that, that basically leads us into the next question, because you've talked about what uh, you, you've been led to the traditional Christian doctrine of creation. What is that doctrine? Well, the first thing that we need to understand is where this doctrine comes from. Because nowadays there's a lot of confusion about that. And the answer is very simple. The Catholic doctrine of creation comes from God's revelation about what he did when there were no other witnesses except for the holy angels. And that revelation is particularly contained in what the church has always referred to as the sacred history of Genesis. If we go to the Holy Gospels, 
and highlight every place where our Lord Jesus Christ speaks about anything in the Holy Gospels that, per, that where he refers to the uh, sacred history of Genesis. We find that he always speaks of anything in Genesis as true history. For example, when he talks about Adam and Eve, he speaks of them as real people who were created in a state of perfect harmony in the beginning of creation, not 13.7 billion years after the beginning of the world. When he speaks about Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, he says that he lived at the foundation of the world, which in the Holy Scriptures always means the beginning of creation, not just the beginning of human history. Well, we don't have time to go through all the verses, but anybody can verify for himself or herself just by going through the Gospels that every single time our Lord speaks about anything in Genesis, he speaks of it as true history. And then when he walked the earth and he worked his marvelous miracles to prove that he was the Messiah and to show forth his divinity, he always acted in the very same way that he had acted in the beginning when with mm -hmm. the Father and the Holy Ghost he spoke the heavens and the earth and the seas and all they contain into existence. So every believing Jew in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ knew that in the beginning, on the sixth day of creation, God took matter from the earth and formed it into the body of the perfect man Adam, breathed into him the breath of life, and willed him into existence, mm -hmm. a perfect, mature man, perfect in body, mind, and soul. And so when our Lord went to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, Lazarus was going on four days a decomposing corpse. A decomposing corpse is just a mess of chemicals. That mess of chemicals has no potential to become a living anything. But when our Lord said, Lazarus, come out, in a split second, that disorganized mess of chemicals was raised up the body of a living, breathing human being. And this is how everyone knew that this is God in the flesh, because he acts in the same way that God acted in the beginning when he created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all they contain. And that's the dogma of creation, that God in the beginning created all the different kinds of creatures supernaturally by willing them into existence for us in our first parents, we would say in view of the Incarnation and the Immaculate Conception. And then he placed Adam and Eve, our first parents, as the king and queen of a perfectly beautiful, harmonious, and complete universe that was totally free, not only from human death, but from divorce, uh, disease, deformity, coronaviruses, and any kind of mm -hmm. disorder of that kind, and that it was only the original sin of Adam that then brought these disorders, death, and deformity, and disease, and genetic defects, and man-harming natural disasters into the first created world. In other words, that God is, did not cr positively create evil. I, I want to just take a quick moment for those who are listening as a podcast. There are some visuals that Hughes put together here that you might be missing out on. So I want to encourage you. I don't always do this because a lot of times you're just looking at me. 
and you're probably better off just listening to the podcast. But Hugh has gone out of his way to create some some beautiful visuals with pictures, scriptural images, and a lot of uh, additional uh, work that he's not uh, so that he's referencing in this presentation. So if you are listening, maybe take the time to sit down and, and review this after the fact on uh, YouTube. Please, uh, Hugh, please go ahead. Certainly, and and thank you for that. So, what I want to emphasize again is that the source of our Catholic doctrine of creation is, first and foremost, the sacred history of Genesis, which our Lord Jesus Christ himself affirmed as a sacred history when he walked the earth. Nowadays, we have so many Catholic intellectuals teaching our young people, as they've been doing now for 50, 60, 70 years, that Genesis is not history that Genesis is poetry or myth or allegory or some other genre. But every single father and doctor of the church agreed with St. Augustine that the narrative of Genesis is, quote, not written in a literary style proper to allegory, but from beginning to end in a style proper to history, as in the books of Kings. So we need to get this straight once and for all, And if we're parents, we should not tolerate that our children be taught anything other than this. Genesis is a sacred history. And therefore, every single historical fact that is related in the sacred history of Genesis is true, simply by virtue of the fact that it is contained therein. It doesn't need any other authentication. Now, Two ecumenical councils, Trent and Vatican I, defined that when all the fathers of the church agree on any interpretation of scripture that pertains to a doctrine of faith or morals, that is the truth. And here we have, in the beautiful words of St. Isaac the Syrian, the unanimous teaching of the fathers on the original creation of the world. This is their interpretation of Genesis 1, unanimous that God, solely by his goodwill, not through any kind of natural process, suddenly, not over long ages of time, brought everything, not just hydrogen, helium, and lithium at the moment of the alleged Big Bang, from non-being into being, and everything stood before him in perfection, not on its way to some omega point in the future, but perfect right when it came forth from God in the beginning. That is the unanimous teaching of all of the fathers of the church, including St. Augustine on Genesis 1. And all of the fathers taught that Genesis is a sacred history, that God created all of the different kinds of creatures instantly and immediately for us in our first parents, that Adam was created body and soul, and Eve literally from his side, and that God stopped creating new kinds of creatures after he created Adam and Eve. Why? Because God created everything for us. And there is a great deal of importance attached to that doctrine, because, as we'll see as we go forward, the fundamental error that has crept into the thinking of most Catholic intellectuals in regard to the origins of man in the universe 
is the error of the so-called Enlightenment philosophers who held that the same kinds of material processes that are going on now have been going on from the very beginning of the universe. That was an, a novelty, a terrible deviation from the teaching that was handed down from the apostles, because the teaching that was handed down from the apostles, derived from the sacred history of Genesis, is that God supernaturally created all the different kinds of creatures, including man, but created every other kind of creature for us in view of the Incarnation and the Immaculate Conception, and therefore he stopped creating new kinds of creatures after the creation of Adam and Eve, and therefore it is impossible to study nature as it is now, and from that to extrapolate back to the beginning of the universe to explain how everything came to be. But what do we see today? We see that most Catholic intellectuals believe wrongly that it's perfectly legitimate to study nature as it is now, and from that to extrapolate into the past and to explain how everything came to be when that is actually impossible. There's another very important point related to this, okay. and that is Catholic intellectuals today, for the most part, are teaching our young people that evolution is a new idea and that Darwin and his disciples really had some profound new insights and we have been able to incorporate what was good in their insights into our faith and this shows that we're really superior to those ignoramuses who think that they can just open up the Bible and believe whatever they read. In reality, the world of the apostles and church fathers was full of evolution. It's nothing new. Epicurus and Lucretius were spouting the same kind of evolutionary nonsense that Richard Dawkins and his disciples are spouting today. In fact, if you look into the writings of Lucretius, who lived practically at the same time as our Lord Jesus Christ, he even articulates the idea of natural selection. Lucretius speaks about these vast ages of time in which matter randomly interacts with other matter and life comes into existence and then there's this struggle for existence between different kinds of living things and the more fit survive and that's how you get this kind of progression and development of living things. This is 2,000 years ago in the beginning of the patristic era. And did the church fathers say, well, look, these people are very smart. They have a big following. Who cares how long it took God to create the world or how he did it as long as we recognize that God did it? No, nobody did that. Every father of the church would have died for the literal historical truth of every word in the sacred history of Genesis, and they totally rejected yeah. these ideas. And here we have St. Basil the Great writing about people who, he says, tried to explain the origin of everything in the universe in terms of material processes. Deceived by their inherent atheism, it appeared to them that nothing governed or ruled the universe and that all was given up to chance. The very same nonsense 
that Richard Dawkins and the so-called new atheists are spouting today. Nothing new. All right, so I'm I'm surprised to learn that uh, Charles Darwin is in fact not the prophet uh, that he is portrayed, uh, especially for, uh, for this mythology as you as you rightly call it. I had no idea that this concept, this error, was so old. But Hugh, could you tell us? I mean, okay, you've 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 convinced me so far of what the the traditional doctrine is, but why should I care about it? Why is it so important? Why would, as you said, the fathers of the church died for this dogma? The reason is because the character of God rests on the truth of this doctrine. If you look into the writings of the church fathers you'll see that all of them agreed with St. Augustine, who wrote these beautiful words in the City of God. In this creation had no one sinned, he writes. The world would have been filled and beautified with nature's good without exception. In other words, when God created the world, before sin entered the world, because God created everything for us and our first parents, everything that he created reflected his goodness, his wisdom, his perfect character. And therefore, the notion that God created the world through a process that involved death, deformity, disease, struggle for existence, extinctions, is a blasphemy because it's attributing to God what is actually the, the result of our sin. And this is why the traditional doctrine of creation is so important. It is the foundation of our faith, but it is also the foundation of our understanding of the character of God. And this is what determines the kind of relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. If we understand that He is all good, all loving, and all wise, and that he created a perfectly good and beautiful world for us in the beginning, then we understand that all the negative things, the death, deformity, disease, all of these things reflect a reflection upon our disobedience, our sin, not a reflection of the character of God. It's, it's almost instead, as though as if you if you uh, take the opposing view, you're impugning the character of God. You're appropriating those natural evils. Not, I'm not talking about supernatural evils at this stage, but you're you're appropriating those natural evils to God, and you're saying He created all those evil things. Exactly, and this is exactly the opposite of what Saint Paul teaches in his letter to the Romans, where in Romans eight he tells us that the entire universe has been made subject to a bondage to decay. Why? Because of the sin that Adam committed on this earth. In other words, St. Paul is teaching us that the entire universe was affected adversely because of the original sin of Adam. This, this earth, is the spiritual capital of the entire cosmos. God created everything for us here in this earthly home and all the disorders and all of the defects 
are the result of the sin that was committed here on this earth. Children who are taught this doctrine, the same doctrine that was handed down from the apostles that the fathers and doctors would have died for, they know that their God is all good, all loving, all true. And they can understand evil in the correct way. And they learn that the thing, the only thing to be feared is sin. But children who are taught that God created the world that we see, that God deliberately used death, hundreds of millions of years of death, deformity, disease, extinction, struggle for existence, to produce the first human beings. We sow within them all kinds of confusion. Because on the one hand, they learn of the goodness of God in the Gospels as manifest in the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then we turn around and tell them that the God of Genesis is a fairy. That's just kind of a myth or an allegory that in reality, God created the world through this process of death and deformity and disease. And it simply doesn't make sense. And as we'll see as we go forward, it's the primary reason why we have a mass exodus of young people out of the Catholic Church, because we're not teaching them the whole faith. We're teaching them a, an incoherent version and a wrong version of the true faith. Sorry, my microphone was muted. Was that Bishop Barron calling you uh, to try to derail your thoughts and maybe uh, <laughs> maybe convince you otherwise, Hugh? Um, I, I, I would love to have a chance to sit down with Bishop Barron as long as we could agree that it wouldn't just be sound bites, but um, no. I think that would be a miracle if, if it were to come to pass. Yeah, not likely. Um, one of the things you do talk about, though, is, the, is what you call the creation providence. Um, it's a framework for thinking about this topic. Um, what is that framework, and, and um, how, can we, how can we restore it? Well, this is one of the most important concepts that I'll be talking about with you this evening. And we recently produced a DVD series called Foundations Restored, which takes this idea of the creation providence framework as one of the most important concepts that's developed throughout 18 and a half hours of, of video. Um, but I highly recommend that anybody in the audience who hasn't seen this DVD series, Foundations Restored, at least go to the Foundations Restored website, www.foundationsrestored.com, and watch the first two episodes. Because Catholics from all over the world have been writing to us, telling us how their lives have been totally transformed, including their spiritual lives, by watching this DVD series. Tonight, I can only give a, a very short explanation, but it's absolutely necessary that I, that I do this. The creation providence framework is the framework within which every apostle, father, doctor, Pope and Council Father that ever taught authoritatively on creation 
has adopted. And what this framework tells us is the entire work of creation, from the creation of the angels to the creation of Adam and Eve, was supernatural. And that when God finished creating Adam and Eve, that's when the natural order, what many doctors call the order of providence, began. So that when God was creating all of the different kinds of creatures, he was creating them supernaturally, and the universe was not a complete operating system, if you will. It's only when Adam and Eve had been created as the crowning work of creation, again, in view of the Incarnation and the Immaculate Conception, that the universe was now a complete operating system, able to operate with relative autonomy. And the reason this is so important is, for one thing, it establishes boundaries or limits for the natural sciences. Because what the apostles, fathers, and doctors understood is that within this creation providence framework, the job of somebody who investigates nature is not to understand how everything came to be. The job of the natural scientist is to understand the natures of things and their relationship with other things in nature. It's not his job to understand how things came to be. Why? Because things came to be supernaturally and the supernatural work of creation was finished with the creation of Adam and Eve. Now, we're going to see in a few minutes that in the 17th century, and especially in the 18th century, there was a revolution that began against this creation providence framework that was spearheaded by René Descartes and Immanuel Kant and Spinoza and the Enlightenment philosophers who rejected this framework in favor of what is generally called a uniformitarian or naturalistic framework, which asserted that the same material processes that are going on now have been going on from the very beginning of the universe, and therefore we can study what's going on now, and from that we can explain how everything came to be, we don't need any revelation from God, we can figure it all out for ourselves. But look, everything in the entire tradition of the church underscores the truth of the creation providence framework. Our separated brethren with their sola scriptura theology have a kind of blind spot forgetting that for 1500 years almost no Christian could read. And so one of the ways that Christians learned the faith generation after generation was from the holy icons. And in fact, the Seventh Ecumenical Council defined that the holy icons approved by the bishops to be placed in the churches teach with authority the same truth that is contained in the Word of God. So if you look at any authentic icon of creation from any part of the Christian world, you will find that they all teach the traditional doctrine of creation. 
you see our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word through whom everything was made, and you see him speaking into existence all the different kinds of creatures, right up to and including on the sixth day of creation, Adam. And then we see that on the seventh day, and this is from uh, the holy icons in Monreale Cathedral in Sicily, which was made a metropolitan cathedral by the Pope at the end of the 12th century. Here we see beautifully uh, portrayed the fact that when God had finished creating Adam and Eve, he rested because he had finished his work. He had made for us a perfectly beautiful, complete, and harmonious universe, and that is what is reflected in the sacred iconography of the church, as well as in the teaching of the the fathers and doctors. Can I ask you, now, can we go off script sure. just for a minute? Because I, it's it's a trigger for me. I'm a convert like you. Uh, yes. Um, why is it that it seems like Protestants do have a better, especially the evangelicals, understand this better than most Catholics? Why are, why are Protestants all, I, for lack of a better word, and maybe this is, I'm not using the right words, young earth creationists? Why are they literalists about Genesis and we are just so bad about that? Well, the the fact of the matter is anything good that our separated brethren possess, they received from us. And their faith in the literal historical truth of Genesis is something they got from the Catholic Church. Because as I've already demonstrated, every father of the Church, I mean, when I say demonstrated, I mean as much as I can in the limited time that's available— Every father of the church understood the first 11 chapters of Genesis to be 100% true history. So today, when Protestants read Genesis 1 to 11 as true history, they're reading Genesis 1 to 11 in the Catholic way. So it's not that the Protestants have something that we don't. It's that we have sold our birthright of the whole Catholic truth for a mess of evolutionary pottage. And to the extent that our separated brethren have continued to believe in the literal historical truth of Genesis, to that extent, they've continued to be Catholic, because the literal historical truth of Genesis has been a an integral part of the Catholic faith from the very beginning of the Church. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the reasons why so many Catholics, beginning with Catholic intellectuals, have abandoned the literal historical interpretation of Genesis is because we have, of course, not just the scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, we have also the tradition of the Church, we have the magisterium. And it's unfortunate, and we're going to understand better by the time we're done tonight, why this is so, but unfortunately in the minds, especially of Catholic intellectuals, there seems to be this idea that we have we are more sophisticated and because we have the tradition of the church and the magisterium, you know, we don't have this simplistic idea that we can read the sacred history of Genesis and, and simply accept it at face value. But that is not Catholic. 
we're going to see that that is a deviation from the authentic Catholic tradition. But part of the reason why our intellectuals, for the most part, have abandoned the authentic Catholic reading of the sacred history of Genesis is because of this idea that we have progressed. We have this technology and this sophisticated scientific knowledge that our fathers in the faith didn't have, and therefore the, the, the line is that God had to give Moses and the church fathers this kind of simple understanding of creation because they didn't have our technology, they didn't have our sophisticated scientific understanding. And this is what I was taught by the Jesuit chaplains at Princeton University. This is what young people are being taught in, in Catholic seminaries and schools and universities all over the world. But I can prove that it's nonsense with one slide. And I hope everybody will have a chance to look up the slide and see for themselves. Because this, for those of you who can see it, is the icon of human evolution. <laughs> and it shows the chimpanzee at one end of the line, and then we have the usual progression through some, some ape men to man, but then at the end of this icon, we have a McDonald's man. And we like to say that the only thing that's scientific about this icon is the McDonald's man, because if you study cutting-edge genetics, what you learn is, and this is not an opinion, this is a fact, what you learn is that cutting-edge genetics has proven beyond any doubt that we are not evolving into Superman, we are devolving into McDonald's man or worse. Because genetic mutations, far from being the mechanism that turns a reptile into a bird or an ape-like creature into a human being, actually destroy the genetic architecture of whatever kind of plant, animal, or human is, is suffering the genetic mutation, except for certain kinds of mutations which are pre-programmed responses to changes in the internal or external environment. I'm talking about the, the random mutations which we were taught in school were the engine that transformed one kind of organism into another. Those kinds of mutations actually destroy the architecture of the genome. And so that's something we will come back to briefly before the end of this podcast. But that's not really my point right now. My point right now is you don't need to know anything about science to understand the icon of human evolution. A three-year-old can look at this picture and understand exactly what is being communicated. So this whole idea that Moses and the church fathers couldn't have understood evolution because it's so complicated, and that's why God had to give them this this myth or this allegory or this poem in Genesis is obviously absurd. Because if this is what God did, if God used the hundreds of millions of years of evolution and evolved an ape-like creature into the body of the first human being, then he could have shown that to Moses. He could have shown that to the great mystical doctors of the church like St. Bridget of Sweden 
And then we would have these beautiful icons in our churches of reptiles sprouting wings and becoming birds and land mammals going out to sea and becoming whales and a common ancestor of chimps and humans turning into Adam while God looks on and, and admires this wonderful evolutionary process that he set in motion. The reason we don't see that in our churches is not because our fathers in the faith were too simple to understand evolution. It's because this evolution idea is a fantasy that was invented by arrogant human beings who could not accept that there are some things that we cannot actually figure out for ourselves by extrapolating from our very limited sphere of knowledge in a fallen world, things that we can only know from divine revelation. And, and this doctrine that's so beautifully depicted in the holy icons in Monreale Cathedral, one generation after that cathedral was made a metropolitan cathedral by the Pope, in part because the faithful could go there and learn their faith just by looking at those holy icons, the dogma of creation was then defined at the Fourth Lateran Council against the heresy of the Albigensian Catharist heretics. And what were they teaching? They were teaching that God created the spiritual creatures, but only created some material elements, mm -hmm. and then Satan created the different kinds of plants and animals and the human body. Sound familiar? Yeah. Well, the Pope convened, Pope Innocent III convened the Fourth Lateran Council to condemn this error. And so in the Fourth Lateran Council, the Church defined the most important dogmatic decree on creation in the history of the Church. The, the Pope and the bishops defined that God, by his own omnipotent power, that means supernaturally, at once, from the beginning of time, created each creature, the spiritual and the corporeal, and then man. And we've done extensive research, and we can prove that the greatest commentators on this council for 600 years, like St. Lawrence of Brindisi, Francisco Suarez, Cornelius Alapide, they all held that with this decree the church defined that God created all the different kinds of plants, all the different angels, and then man, body and soul, by fiat, by willing them into existence at the beginning of time, mm -hmm. not over some long period of creation. I, and it was I think only it's important in that the 19th the audience, century that that was called into question. Maybe the audience should just understand that the Albigensian heretics were so committed to their error that they had to be brutally suppressed, like militarily suppressed, especially in France. Uh, and Lateran IV couldn't put them down. Um, it's 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 similar to the uh, the manner in which the that same error that we see today, people cling to this error today. Sorry, I didn't I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just I wanted to. Not at all. That's that. fine. Absolutely, and and of course, there's a sort of a black legend that's grown up about the church's uh, response to the Albigensian heresy, but most of the people who try to defame the church because the Pope approved of a military response finally to the, to the uh, Albigensian 
uh, heresy, uh, the heretics who were using violence to to maintain their control in areas where the faithful were actually being persecuted by these heretics. What people generally don't understand because they don't do their homework is that God had been sending the greatest missionaries in the history of the church, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Anthony of Padua, people of this caliber, St. Dominic later, because St. Dominic founded the Dominican order as a response to the Albigensian Catharist heresy when he encountered it in the south of France. And for generations, God sent the holiest people on the face of the earth to preach the truth to these people, and they rejected it. And right. finally, God said enough. You, you had literally generations of opportunities to repent and turn back to the truth. And not only have you not repented, you are oppressing those who are trying to live according to the truth. And finally, God had to had to direct the Vicar of Christ to use the military option because the people did not respond to the to the truth when it was proclaimed without any use of, of force whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, if St. Bernard of Clairvaux doesn't convert you, then um, I don't know what to say. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, you're about to answer the next question, which is uh, how did the traditional doctrine of creation fall into obscurity? I mean, if it was so clearly defined at Lateran Four. If there were if there were battles fought over this error, you would think it would be enshrined in the memory of people, especially in um, in the French. But it but it fell away. How did that happen? Well, this is such an important question, and it's good to begin by acknowledging that God does nothing, as the prophet Amos tells us without telling his servants the prophets. And in this case, the evolution deception was such a serious threat to the faith that Almighty God inspired St. Peter, our first pope, to actually warn us against it in the very pages of the New Testament. If you go to St. Peter's second epistle, chapter 3, you can read one of the most amazing prophetic passages in the entire Bible because in 2 Peter chapter 3, St. Peter warns us about what is happening, what has happened in this modern era. It's absolutely incredible because he says that in the last days, people are going to come into the church mocking the word of God in Genesis. He doesn't say that explicitly, but it's clearly what he's saying. And he says that these scoffers are going to say things have always been the same from the beginning of creation. Now, we've already seen that the creation providence framework, which was revealed in Genesis and upheld by all the fathers, doctors, popes, and council fathers, tells us that things have not always been the same from the beginning of creation. Because Creation was supernatural, and the natural order only began 
when the entire supernatural work of creation was finished. But St. Peter warns us that in far in the future, he says, in the last days, scoffers will come into the church saying, no, things have always been the same from the beginning. So we can figure it out for ourselves. We don't need any revelation from God because things have always been the same. We can study what's going on now and from that we can explain it ourselves. And look what he goes on to say. He says these people, when they come, they're going to have to ignore the fact that it was the word of God that created the heavens and the earth and all it contained in the beginning. Not a natural process like a supernova explosion. And he says, they're also going to have to ignore the fact that there was a worldwide flood in the time of Noah, which totally destroyed the face of the earth. So that he says, the world that then was perished in the flood. And this is exactly what happens in the so-called Enlightenment period. Because Rene Descartes, who lives from 1596 to 1650, is the first baptized Catholic scholar to begin to be taken seriously when after dabbling in the occult, living a very immoral life, and leaving Catholic France for the Netherlands so he can be free to think and write and do whatever he pleases, he admits that he has three mystical dreams in which he says a spirit of truth possesses him and puts him on the path to develop a wonderful new way of thinking that will change the way everybody thinks. And one of those wonderful new ideas that Rene Descartes gets from this spirit of truth, alias some demonic entity, is that it's more reasonable to explain the origins of everything in nature, like stars or plants or animals or even the human body, in terms of the same material processes that are going on now, instead of this strange idea that things just popped into existence in the beginning. And that is what Descartes proposes. Now, his works are put on the index of forbidden books, because every theologian in the church knows that this is nonsense. How could you possibly explain a supernatural creation in terms of natural processes. But that doesn't stop Descartes' dangerous error from gradually insinuating itself into the minds of the intellectual elite of the entire Western world. And here's something amazing. Blaise Pascal was a contemporary of Descartes and every bit as great a genius as Descartes was. But Blaise Pascal actually loved our Lord Jesus Christ and the Catholic Church. And he realized that if this false philosophy of Descartes were accepted, it would cause untold, do untold harm to humanity. And so in his work, Pensee, Pascal writes these amazing words. He says, I cannot forgive Descartes. In all his philosophy, he did his best to dispense with God. Oh, he could not avoid making him set the world in motion with a flip of his thumb. The Big Bang, if you will. After that, he had no more use for God. Isn't that incredible? That 
is 2 Peter chapter 3. Pascal saw, if you accept that things have always been the same from the beginning of the universe, what do you need God for? All you need God for is to start everything going. Mm -hmm. Then you can forget about him. Mm -hmm. Because if things have always been the same, then you can study what's going on now. And from that, you can explain how everything came to be. That is 2 Peter 3 coming to its fulfillment. And it doesn't stop with the philosophers. It continues with the geologists. James Hutton in Scotland, Charles Lyell in England, they were the geological revolutionaries who took this false philosophy of Descartes and applied it to the study of geology. And so their guiding principle in everything that they did was the present is the key to the past, that things have always been the same. So if we want to explain the sedimentary rock formations all over the earth, we look at what's happening now and we extrapolate into the past. We don't need any revelation from God. All this all this talk about a global flood, that's obviously just a fairy tale because we don't see anything like that going on now. So we study the present and from that we figure out what really happened in the past. Well, of course, there are some big problems with this because not only is this principle wrong, it's actually the opposite of the truth. Because in reality, anybody who wants to understand how we got to the present has to understand three supernatural historical facts. Number one, that there was a fiat creation, a supernatural creation in the beginning. Number two, there was a divine judgment on the entire universe because of the original sin. And number three, there was another divine judgment on the whole world at the time of Noah's flood. So the reality is, it, the past, rightly understood, is the key to understanding the present. But what did Satan do? He duped some of the most intelligent people who have ever walked the earth into taking a principle that is the opposite of the truth and making that the foundation for everything that they did in their so-called scientific investigations. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, these geologists were completely wrong in their understanding because they had no they had no facilities for doing real experimental research in the field of sedimentology as we have today. And so doing geology in the time of Charles Lyell basically meant taking walks in the countryside, looking at the rocks and speculating about how they might have formed. And so he imagined that great bodies of water came over the earth sediment settled out, the waters withdrew, the sediment hardened into rock, and that this happened over and over again over eons of time. And then, of course, if that were true, as he assumed that it was, then he, he, he concluded that when we look at the big sedimentary rock formations all over the earth like the Grand Canyon, then we could, we could be sure that the sedimentary rocks at the bottom were formed eons ago, and 
the ones closer to the top were formed more recently. And then if, if that were true, which we'll see it isn't, then of course the fossils in the rocks do seem, at first at least, to tell the story of life developing from the simpler to the more complex, from the fish to the amphibian to the reptile to the bird to the mammal, and finally to man. And that's how we get Darwin and biological evolution. But everybody in, in our audience should be very clear about this. This is a house of cards because Lyell's wild speculations in geology are completely based on Descartes' false philosophy that he got from the spirit of truth, alias some demon. And Darwin's wild speculations in biology are completely based on Lyell's wild speculations in geology. But that's how we get the so-called tree of life. And this tree of life, which figures prominently in almost every biology textbook in every Catholic school and university in the entire world, is completely bogus. And for one thing, it should be called the tree of death, and not the tree of life, because according to theistic evolution, it took the god of evolution 550 plus million years of death and destruction to get from the bottom to the top of the tree of life so that we could have human evolution. It's a blasphemy. Could I ask you, Hugh, to go back to that quote that includes, that lumps Darwin and, and Marx together? I, I just, I think I want to read that aloud for people who may be listening to the podcast or didn't get it. I know we're running long, Please. but this is worth it. It says, quote, what they, Marx and Darwin, both celebrated was the internal rhythm and course of life, the, uh, the one, the life of nature, the other, the life of society, that proceeded by fixed laws, undistracted by the will of God or men. There were, there were no catastrophes in history as there were in nature. As there were none in nature. There were, no, there were no inexplicable acts, no violations of the natural order. God was as powerless as individual men to intervene with the internal self-adjusting dialectic of change and development. I mean, this, this is really important because, I mean, today we are talking about Black Lives Matter. We are talking about racism, and, and we're going to get there towards the end of this podcast. Yes. But this man explicitly links Karl Marx and Darwin together in terms of their observations of history. I mean, this is, I've never seen this before. This is fascinating. Sorry. I had to, I had to point that out. No, it's very important. And of course, this is Frederick Engels who wrote those words in his eulogy for Karl Marx and Karl Marx wanted to dedicate Das Kapital to Charles Darwin because Marx saw very clearly that Darwin provided the, the scientific basis for his theory and that without Darwin he could never persuade people to accept his materialist uh, ideas he had to have Darwin to give credibility to his materialism and uh, this is very important for people to understand right okay so uh, you have the confluence of all these things 
You've got geologists and natural scientists lining up against you. You've got Descartes and other philosophers lining up against you. Clearly, the Magisterium has to do something about it. Hugh, can you tell us what they did at that point in history? Yes, and this, again, is very important to understand because one of many misunderstandings that are widespread among Catholic intellectuals and have been for 50, 60, 70 years is the idea that the magisterium of the church was very open to Darwin's ideas and very accepting of them pretty much right from the beginning. This is completely false. And if you look at the response of, for example, blessed Pope Pius IX, who was the reigning pope when Darwin published his book, Origin of Species, you will see that he had nothing but contempt for this idea that a microbe turned into a human body through the same kinds of material processes that are going on now. And it's interesting that if you look at the, uh, the catechisms that were in use throughout the entire world at the time when Darwin published Origin of Species, they all taught that Genesis is a sacred history, the chronology of the world that we derive from the historical data contained in Genesis is absolutely correct, and everything that is related in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is to be accepted at face value, period. And here, for example, is a, a, a quote from a dogmatic catechism that was published in 1855 by a very distinguished uh, theologian who's, who talks about the fact that there are people who are asserting that there are some ancient monuments that are more than 10,000 years old to bring discredit to the sacred scriptures and to shake the foundations of our most holy religion. And he goes on, Adam was the first man created by God. He is as old as heaven and earth within five days, having been created on the sixth day of creation, and all the buildings and monuments which are in the world are less ancient than Adam. Now, at the early stage, after the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859, the most successful propagandist for Darwin was not Darwin, and it wasn't even T.H. Huxley. The most effective propagandist for Darwin was this man, Ernst Haeckel, the German anatomist, who, as we shall see in a few minutes, faked drawings to make it appear that the human embryo is identical in the early stages of development to the fish, to the salamander, to the turtle, to the pig, so that this was proof that the human recapitulates his evolutionary history in the mother's womb. Now, if you read the writings of Haeckel, you will discover that he admits that when 
Darwin's works were first published, the church was fiercely opposed to them. He writes, it was obvious that the general theory of evolution and its extension to man in particular must meet from the first with the most determined resistance on the part of the churches. Both were in flagrant contradiction to the mosaic story of creation and other biblical dogmas that were involved in it and that are still taught in our elementary schools. So it's a lie, it's a falsehood anyway, that the church was receptive to Darwin's ideas when he first published them. Pope, Blessed Pope Pius IX commended a book by a French physician, Constantine James, who wrote a critique of Darwinian evolution. And in his commendation of this book, Blessed Pope Pius IX wrote these words. He said, evolution is a system which is so repugnant at once to history, to the tradition of all the peoples, to exact science, to observed facts, and even to reason herself, it would seem to need no refutation. Did not alienation from God and the leaning toward materialism due to depravity eagerly seek a support in all this tissue of fables? So does that sound as if the magisterium was it's receptive? Strong to words. I mean, Darwin's come on. Ideas. Yeah, and blessed. But, but I, I have to. I bring in the side by side here. Blessed Pope Pius IX is also the author of the Syllabus of Errors. We talk a lot about that on this channel. I reference various numbers of those syllabi of errors, of that, that yes. syllabus, that single syllabus of errors. So this is a man who forcefully condemned um, Freemasonry, forcefully condemned modernism, and he here, in this quote that you just heard Hugh read, he is, he is condemning, he is condemning evolution. Okay, sorry, go ahead, Hugh, sorry. I can't help myself. But more than condemning it, He's, he's dismissing it as something that's not even worthy of condemnation because it's so ridiculous. This is why he calls it a tissue of fables. And this is very important to understand because many Catholics, including many Catholic scholars of goodwill, want to know why the magisterium did not give an explicit condemnation of the ideas of Darwin. And one of the reasons is that initially they didn't consider Darwin's work to be serious. And that we can say with 2020 hindsight that that was a mistake, but it's very important to take that into consideration when you try to understand the history of the relationship between the teaching authority of the church and these errors. Now, Vatican I was convened 10 years after the publication of Origin of Species, and Vatican I reaffirmed the dogmatic decree on creation of Lateran IV verbatim, but added a very important canon. And this is what the canon says, canon three in the section on faith and reason. If anyone says that it is possible that to the dogmas declared by the church, a meaning must sometimes be attributed according to the progress of science, different 
from that which the church has understood and understands, let him be anathema. This is very important. What this anathema tells us is that it is impossible for us to learn anything that is true in any area of natural science, be it astronomy, geology, paleontology, biology, that will ever contradict the dogma of creation as it had been handed down at the time that that anathema was hand, handed down. Now, the, the, the defenders of theistic evolution will say, oh, but the church didn't define the dogma of creation in a way that was not compatible with evolution. That is false. How do I know that? Because at the very moment that this anathema was handed down, the Roman Catechism, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, was mandated as the gold standard for teaching and preaching throughout the entire world by the Pope and the bishops. And the Catechism of Trent teaches very clearly in its explanation of the first article of, of the Creed that God created everything exactly as described in the sacred history of Genesis. He spoke and it was made, he commanded and it was created. The, the Catechism of Trent is very explicit. This is how God created the world, this is how he created the different kinds of plants and animals, the angels, Adam and Eve, and the, the, the Roman Catechism goes on to say that if the pastor wants to teach his people how God created the heavens and the earth and all they contain, all he has to do is refer to the sacred history of Genesis and teach that to his people. So whether we know it or not, the reality is that this anathema forbids us to hold that anything in any area of natural science contradicts the dogma of creation as it is defined in the Catechism of Trent. Now, here are some quotations from that Catechism which make it clear that what I'm saying is true. The divinity created all things in the beginning. He spoke and they were made. He commanded and they were created. He clothed and adorned the earth with trees and every variety of plant and flower, filled it as he had already filled the air and water with innumerable kinds of living creatures. There's no evolution. God speaks and he creates all the different kinds of creatures. It explains here he creates Adam, body and soul, and the pastor can simply consult the sacred history of Genesis to teach the truth to the people. And here the Catechism of Trent reaffirms this very important doctrine that after God created Adam and Eve, he stopped creating new kinds of creatures. Here, Hugh, and that uh, is what uh, allow, me to read, allow me to read this one, and I'm going to take you off the camera. I'll read this, and that way if you'd like to unplug your phone, uh, you can. No one, no one can see you right now. It's uh, camera's on me, unfortunately. You're stuck with me. Hi, guys. I'm going to read this quote. We now come to the meaning of the word Sabbath. Sabbath is a Hebrew word which signifies cessation. To keep the Sabbath, therefore, means to cease from labor and to rest. 
In this sense, the seventh day was called the Sabbath because God, having finished the creation of the world, rested on that day from all the work which he had done. Thus it is called by the Lord in Exodus. That's from the Catechism of the Council of Trent. And since the camera is on me, I will just note that here you you were also talking about the Sabbath, keeping holy the Sabbath. And one of the things that we talk about a lot on this show is the profanation of the Sabbath. And that's why we have the devotion of Holy Face. We did pray the golden arrow prayer at the beginning of this podcast. And although there was an echo for the first two minutes, God in his mercy eliminated that echo and we are proceeding. Hugh, camera's back on you, sir. Thank you so much. And it's very important to understand that when Our Lady of La Salette revealed herself to the children, Maximin and Melanie, and was weeping because of sins against the second commandment, sins of blasphemy, and sins against the third commandment, violations of the Lord's Day, it was at the very time when Charles Lyell and his disciples were propagating this false understanding of geology, which destroyed the faith of so many millions of people in the literal historical truth of Genesis. But the Catechism of Trent, meanwhile, was upholding the truth and teaching generation after generation after generation that God created everything in six literal days and rested on a seventh literal day. And therefore that the Lord's Day, as it explains elsewhere, which was the eighth day, was also the day of a new creation because God saw fit to create the world on a Sunday, the first Sunday of the world, but then he saw fit to bring in the new creation with his glorious resurrection on a Sunday. And when you understand that, you are much less likely to profane the Lord's day. But when you think that Genesis is just a, yeah. a, an allegory, you know, it's just a story, it never really happened. That's a great point. You, you don't take it seriously in the same way. That's a great point. That's important. Okay, so I'm, I'm still confused at this point, Hugh. You've convinced me that all of these holy pontiffs have spoken so clearly. The Council of Trent uh, seems like it's in black and white. Uh, how did it? How could it possibly come to be that so many Catholic so-called scientists and theologians, philosophers, would then abandon the clarity of uh, Lateran Four of Trent and uh, and fall into this error? I will explain. I'm sorry it's taking me so long, but the devil is very um, willing to take a long time to achieve his objectives. He never sleeps. We can't call him patient, but we can say that he has a certain kind of persistence. And I'm going to show you how he did this. It's, it's completely diabolical. You see, in 1878, and this has only come to light very recently with the opening up of the Vatican archives from the end of the 19th century to scholars. But it has come to light that in 1878, believe it or not, the Congregation of the Index condemned the thesis 
of a theologian by the name of Caverni that, quote, it is possible to reconcile evolution with Christian doctrine, unquote. And there was a Dominican cardinal, Cardinal Zilliara, who explained why this condemnation was necessary. And he says, because with his system, Darwin destroys the bases of revelation and openly teaches pantheism and abject materialism. So this cardinal hit the nail on the head. He saw that this microbe to man hypothesis has to be condemned because if you accept it, you're destroying the foundation of the faith. The dogma of creation is the foundation of the faith. But what happens? Well, all over the world, young people in Catholic schools in every corner of the world are still being taught the truth. St. Therese of Lisieux, as St. Pius X said, the greatest saint of modern times, perhaps, was taught from what is known as the Catechism of Perseverance. And it's heartbreaking to see that in her catechism, she was given the answer to a question that many Catholic intellectuals today don't know how to answer. In fact, they ask this question as a way of trying to bring discredit and even ridicule upon people like us who try to defend the true Catholic doctrine of creation. This is from her catechism. Why were the sun, moon, and stars not created until the fourth day? Perhaps you're familiar with the works of Father Stanley Yaki. Father Yaki, although he, he did a lot of good work in other areas, Father Yaki argued that we can't take Genesis 1 literally because according to Genesis 1, there were six days of creation, but the sun wasn't created until the fourth day, and you obviously can't have days without the sun, so the whole thing obviously isn't meant to be taken literally. I'm sure you've heard that before. Sure. Well, isn't it pathetic that every child in the whole wide world was actually being taught the answer to this question? It doesn't require a PhD or an STD. And so the little flower learned the answer. The sun, moon, and stars were not created until the fourth day in order to teach man that they are not the authors of the productions of the earth. God wished thereby to prevent idolatry. This is exactly what St. John Chrysostom and the Church Fathers taught, that God with his foreknowledge knew that man in the future would realize that life on earth is completely dependent upon the sun. And so, if he believed that the sun had existed from the very beginning of the world, what would he be tempted to do? Worship the sun. Maybe even offer sacrifice to the sun. Maybe even offer human sacrifice to the sun, as was done by the Aztecs to only God knows how many tens or hundreds of thousands of innocent victims. So God revealed from the beginning 
that he did not that he created light on the first day to alternate with darkness to create the 24-hour day-night cycle but he revealed that he only created the sun on the fourth day so that anybody who adhered who maintained who upheld the revelation from God in Genesis would never fall into idolatry in that way and yet what we have today is Catholic intellectuals all over the place mocking the ignoramuses who accept the literal historical truth of Genesis. Why? Because they say, you can't have days without the sun, stupid. And Genesis 1 tells us there was no sun till the fourth day, so obviously you can't take the days of Genesis 1 literally. What a tragedy. And so we come to Pope St. Pius X. And this is the Pope who realized that the gates of hell were about to make an onslaught against the holy faith as never before in the entire history of the church. And so in his great encyclical Prescendi, he warns us that now we have in the church the worst heresy in the history of the church, modernism. Now, many traditional Catholics, maybe all traditional Catholics, know that he called modernism the synthesis of all heresies. But how many traditional Catholics know that in the very same encyclical he says that evolution is the principal doctrine of the modernists? How are we going to combat something when we don't recognize what is its principal strength? How are we going to combat an error when we don't even identify what the principal error is that is behind this thing? It's impossible. Well, and, th- and this leads me back yeah. to my confusion then, Hugh, because now we've gone from I mean, Blessed Pius the Ninth. You, you listed uh, Leo the Thirteenth. Now Pope Saint Pius the Tenth condemns it solemnly. It looks like he names it by name in Pascendi. Um, you know, and I, how did how did it come to pass that everyone in academia, in theology, in in f- physical sciences, and in soft sciences, well, as we'll call it, you know, like economics and psychology and all this. How did all these people all get infected with what we'll call the real pathogen of uh, evolutionism? Well, here's the, here's the clue. In the same year in which Pope St. Pius X published Prescendi, in Lamentabili Sane, Pope St. Pius X condemned a certain proposition, and this is very revealing. Proposition he condemns is, quote, they are free from all blame who treat lightly the condemnations passed by the sacred congregation of the index. Why does he have to make this condemnation? Because he sees that the condemnation of 1878, when the Congregation of the Index condemned the proposition that evolution can be reconciled with the Catholic faith. He sees that many 
Catholic intellectuals are paying no attention to it whatsoever. And so what is happening is that all over the Western world, there are now many Catholic intellectuals who are disregarding the whole traditional teaching of the church. And they're claiming that just as Copernicus and Galileo had these great new insights, and at first the church was very negative towards them, but eventually they claim, falsely, the church came around to accept them, which is not true. They were saying, now we have the same thing. Yes, the authorities have reacted negatively, just like they reacted negatively to Copernicus and Galileo, but we see the overwhelming scientific evidence. We know that this is the truth, and we have to stick to our guns because the magisterium is going to come around. The teaching authority of the church is going to come around. And that brings us to our next question. How did these people, how did these Catholic scientists and other intellectuals become convinced that the scientific evidence overwhelmingly supported this molecules-to-man evolution mythology and didn't support the literal historical truth of the first 11 chapters of Genesis? Well, here's the number one player who brought this about we would say, the number one tool of Satan, because this was not something that a human being could achieve without preternatural assistance. But this was the man who, more than anybody else, more than Darwin, more than T.H. Huxley, more than any of his disciples or propagandists, changed the intellectual atmosphere within Catholic academia. And you know what? Ernst Haeckel himself, around this very time when St. Pius X published Bishendi, boasted about evolution's greatest triumph. And what do you think evolution's greatest triumph was? He says, the science of evolution won its greatest triumph when at the beginning of the 20th century, its most powerful opponents, the churches, and he means especially the Catholic Church, became reconciled to evolution and endeavored to bring their dogmas into line with it. And how did he do it? This is sickening, but it's the truth. He did it with lies. Father John Augustine Zahm, if you're able to look at the slides, you have a picture of him here, was one of the leading intellectuals at Notre Dame University at the beginning, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And Father Zahm was a theologian. He was also a natural scientist. And he wanted to promote Notre Dame as a cutting-edge academic institution by emphasizing the natural sciences and embracing evolution. And so Father Zahm started writing books. 
showing how evolution, microbe to man evolution, could be reconciled with the Catholic faith. And the strongest proof that he provided was what? The drawings of Ernst Haeckel showing the human embryo and the embryos of the fish, pig, chicken, turtle, and salamander, making it seem that the human embryo passes through all the stages of evolution in the mother's womb. It's important to understand that even though Father Zahm was disciplined by Rome and told to withdraw at least one of his books from circulation, he kept right on going. And you can draw a direct line from that terrible day at the beginning of the 20th century when Notre Dame became a flagship Catholic institution embracing evolution to that even more terrible day a hundred years later when Barack Obama, the most pro-abortion political leader in the entire world, walked on stage at Our Lady's University and received an honorary degree while the real Catholics were being handcuffed and taken down to the local armory, not even allowed to protest this abomination. Because without Father Zahm's bogus pseudoscientific promotion of microbe-to-man evolution based on the lie that the human embryo recapitulates her evolutionary history in the mother's womb, there would never have been an honorary degree for the most pro-abortion political leader in the entire world. The two are inseparable. And here's the proof. This is the proof that one, more than anything else, this is the proof that one, Catholic intellectuals throughout the Western world over to the microbe-to-man evolution mythology. I mean, but my children would reject this. I mean, this just looks... No, they would not. This looks childish. I'm sorry, but your children will not reject this if it's presented to them in with the suitable gravity, with, with the suitable rhetoric, with the right kind of window dressing. And I know that because I didn't reject it. Mm-hmm. And I suppose... And, and I'm talking about... I didn't reject it in the 1960s when I was being educated in what were considered to be the best schools in the United States of America. Because when everybody around you says, obviously the drawings had been somewhat dressed up and, and improved upon from the original version that I'm showing you here, but they are essentially the same. In fact, I can show you, I will show you, 21st century biology textbooks that are essentially the same as this nonsense. Okay, I'm glad I'm glad you said that because a bunch of folks in the live chat have been wanting to have been dying to ask you that question, Hugh. A lot of them are convinced that this is still being taught today in biology and, and, and anatomy textbooks, and, I, uh, and so maybe ten people have yes, asked we'll, that. Yes, we'll, and we'll document that in just a moment. But just to give you an, an idea of the absolutely incredible success that Ernst Teckel had with this completely bogus fraud. Here is Sir Julian Huxley, the most prominent scientist champion of 
molecules to man evolution in the entire world. 100 years after the publication of Origin of Species, laying it on the line. And what does he say? He says, embryology gives the most striking proof of evolution. Think about that. When, when Sir Julian Huxley wrote these words, his people had had control of almost all the major universities, all the major research centers, and government-funded institutions that do scientific research. And he's telling us that this is the best proof that they could come up with. And here it is. On the top row, you have the most striking proof of evolution according to the leading evolutionary scientist in the entire world 100 years after the publication of Origin of Species. On the bottom row, you have the actual photographs taken by biologist Michael Richardson and published in the journal Scientific American in 1994, 26 years ago. Now, I think anybody of sound mind can agree that there is no resemblance between evolutionary mythology and scientific reality. Not only does the human embryo, not only is it distinct from the embryos of all the other kinds of creatures at the same stage of development, and these photographs are of these different organisms at the same stage of development. But in addition, it's obvious to anyone with eyes to see that each kind of creature has its own specific pattern of embryonic development. So this is completely opposite to what Darwin, Huxley, Heckel, Julian Huxley, Richard Dawkins, and all the rest of them have been saying from day one. But it agrees perfectly with the sacred history of Genesis. Because Moses tells us ten times in Genesis 1 that God created each kind of creature to reproduce after its kind. And that's exactly what real science shows us. Each kind of creature has its own specific pattern of embryonic development, and it's distinct. And that is what we see across the board. But look what happens. Father Rahner is probably the most influential Catholic theologian of the 20th century. And in 1970, 20 years after the publication of Humani Generis, when the Pope said that Catholic scholars should examine the evidence for and against the evolutionary hypothesis, Father Rahner goes into print saying that he's convinced that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. In other words, the human embryo passes through all the stages of evolution in the mother's womb. So Father Rahner, 20 years after Humani Generis, does not obey the Pope. He does not critically examine 
the ludicrous claims of Julian Huxley and the Pied Pipers of evolutionism, he meekly accepts what they say. And by doing that, Father Rahner and the other modernist theologians who jumped on the evolutionary bandwagon threw open the doors to all the people who wanted to legalize abortion, at least in the first trimester, and abortifacient contraception, because now they could say, look, even your smartest people recognize that evolution is a fact. How can you be so stupid as to demand for what's only going through the fish stage or the amphibian stage all the rights and privileges of a mature, fully developed human being. This is a matter of not only physical, but also spiritual life and death. And here's the proof that it's still in the textbooks. This is a 21st century biology textbook, typical of biology textbooks that we've seen all over the world, in Catholic schools, universities, even seminaries. And I don't see a whole lot of difference between these drawings and the forgeries in Ernst Haeckel's 19th century works. And mind you, Haeckel was censured by his own peers in his own lifetime for his unethical practices. He drew a human embryo, copied it, and then said that that was the embryo of the chicken, the pig, the fish, the turtle, and the salamander. And when he was called out on it, he made some slight modifications. But it was still a fraud. And it's still a fraud today. But it gets worse because this book, which contains these drawings, was co-authored by a prominent member of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And look at the caption that he wrote, or co-authored. It says, all vertebrates start out with an enlarged head region, gill slits, and a tail. And this is complete rubbish. What are called gill slits have absolutely nothing to do with breathing, with respiration. They develop into the pharyngeal arches in different parts of our facial anatomy. And what is called a tail has nothing to do with being a vestigial tail. But what happens to Catholic young people when they read this garbage? They become convinced that evolution is true. They become convinced that when they were in their mother's womb, they actually went through the stages of evolution. And is it any surprise then that Catholic women are statistically just about as likely to have an abortion and murder one of their own children as non-Catholics. It's not surprising at all because the Catholic and the non-Catholic are both being taught the same evolutionary pseudoscience, which is convincing them that a human being is not fully human from the moment of conception, when in reality, Everything in sound science tells us that that is the case. And before we leave this topic, I, I, I want to give the audience one more piece of this puzzle. Because I can tell you, we've been 
going around the world trying our best to show that sound theology, sound philosophy, and sound natural science all confirm the traditional Catholic doctrine as the foundation of our faith and as the only possible foundation for a culture of life and a Catholic civilization. But again and again, we have Catholic leaders from bishops on down say to us, but how could so many brilliant scientists be wrong? How could so many brilliant scientists be mistaken about something like this? And I want to show you how easily genius IQ brilliant scientists can be totally wrong about this subject. This, if you have the YouTube video in front of you, is a photograph of Dr. Jerry Coyne, one of the leading evolutionary biologists and champions of evolution in the whole world. I think he got his PhD from Harvard, but he teaches at the University of Chicago. And in a fairly recent book, Why Evolution is True, published in 2009, Dr. Jerry Coyne tells the young people of the world that embryology is still a, a very, provides a very striking proof that molecules turned into human bodies through the same kinds of material processes that are going on now. So let's take a look. What's his proof? His proof is that every human being in the mother's womb, all of us, had a transitory coat of hair. The technical name for it is Lanugo. And Dr. Jerry Coyne, with his genius IQ, points out that there's no need for a human embryo to have a transitory coat of hair in the mother's womb. It's a cozy 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit in there, he points out. Mm -hmm. Now watch his reasoning. Lanugo, he says then, can only be explained as a remnant of our primate ancestry when we were covered with hair and swinging from the trees. I added that last phrase, but the rest of it is a direct quote from his book. Now, I want everybody that's listening or watching to stop right there for a minute and think. Here we have one of the leading evolutionary biologists in the entire world, a man with un undoubtedly with a genius IQ. And yet he's telling us that because he can't figure out why every little human in the mother's womb has a transitory coat of hair, it must be a useless holdover from when we were covered with hair and swinging from the trees. I hope that you can see that this is anti-science. Anti-science. We have people like Jerry Coyne and Bill Nye, the science guy, going all over the country saying that these people who believe in Genesis, these people who believe in creation, they're anti-science. They're science stoppers. They're a disgrace to our country. Businesses won't want to locate to places where people have these kinds of ridiculous beliefs. And yet, who are the real science stoppers? The real science stoppers are the evolutionists. Because until 
evolutionary mythology bewitched the intellectual elite of the Western world, all the greatest scientists believed in the sacred history of Genesis. And every scientist like Maxwell or Faraday who believed in the sacred history of Genesis knew that when they looked at the feature of a plant or an animal or a human being and they couldn't understand why the feature was there, it didn't mean that the feature was a useless holdover from an earlier stage of evolution. It simply meant that they weren't smart enough to understand why the creator had placed that feature in that particular creature. And they understood that their job as natural scientists was to continue to investigate until they discovered the purpose of that feature, organ or whatever it was. Now, we have documented on our website, for example, we have an article, The Negative Impact of Faith in Evolution on Scientific and Medical Research. We give example after example of how faith in evolution, in microbe or molecules demand evolution, has retarded scientific and medical research at, to the cost of millions and millions of lives and untold human suffering because of the way that the evolutionary paradigm makes brilliant people look at things and misunderstand how to understand how to look at those things correctly. And here's a perfect example with the Lanugo. The evolutionist cannot look at the Lanugo and ask the right question. Why is this here? And if he does ask the question, if he doesn't immediately see the answer, then evolution is what provides the answer, which is always the wrong answer. And sure enough, Jerry Keen, Jerry, Jerry Coyne, with his genius high Q, was 100% wrong. Because even years before he went into print with his book, Why Evolution is True, any course in anatomy, physiology, midwifery, worth its salt, was teaching that the Lanugo has a special purpose. Because you see, if you've ever had the privilege of beholding a baby a term being born, I have nine wonderful children and I've been present at the birth of all of my children. In fact, the last one came so fast I had to deliver him myself, which is a wonderful experience. And I've observed what this slide shows, that every baby a term comes into the world covered with something that looks kind of like yogurt. The technical name for it is vernix cassiosa, cheesy varnish. And this yogurt-like substance protected our delicate skin when we were immersed in the amniotic fluid in our mother's womb for months at a time. But you see, there was an engineering problem that had to be overcome, namely, how do you keep something like yogurt on the smooth skin of a little baby while she's floating in amniotic fluid for months at a time? And of course, the answer is the lanugo. And that's why years before Dr. Jerry Coyne with his genius IQ went into print with Why Evolution is True, courses that were up to date in embryology were teaching students this, Vernix Cassiosa, 
is a culmination of sebaceous gland secretions and dead epidermal cells, and the lanugo hair helps retain it on the outer skin surface. So you see, every course in biology in every Catholic school and university in the world should be a place, an occasion for continual praises of God. God, how great you are. All your works are so wonderful. You designed this lanugo to hold the vernix cassioso on my skin to protect me when I was in my mother's womb. How great you are. But that's not what's happening. Instead, in the overwhelming majority of Catholic schools and universities, our children, we're paying people good money to teach our children that Genesis is a myth, that evolution is true, and that the Lanugo is not a, a wonder of God's creation, but a holdover from an earlier stage of evolution when we were covered with hair and swing from the trees. Okay, so it it appears to me now, or it's 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 more clear what you said uh, actually a couple questions ago, that the intelligence behind this error never sleeps, and is constantly scheming in how to destroy us. Um, what with uh, against a a veritable tsunami a wave of of misinformation and disinformation like that, I think we can all kind of understand and appreciate how even brilliant people, and you, and you drove the point home, Hugh, so, so well, how brilliant people can fall into this error. I do think that um, when you take this error and apply it to other parts of the world and other philosophies, so we've spent a lot, a lot of time in Europe, we have to now go into, you know, head east, Bolshevik Revolution is happening um, in in the early 20th century. Uh, people uh, are very quick to link the Bolshevik Revolution to the French Revolution and the same revolutionary spirit from the beginning. But one of the things you're going to link also to the Bolshevik Revolution is evolutionary theory. Absolutely. When our Blessed Mother appeared at Fatima, our Lord saw fit to work the greatest public miracle since the resurrection to show us that her message at Fatima was especially urgent and important. And in that message, of course, she told us that if her requests were heeded, Russia would be converted and there would be peace throughout the whole world. But she said that if if her requests were not heeded, and if people did not repent and turn back to God, Russia, which the three little children probably couldn't have found on a map, she said Russia will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. Now, if you were to ask traditional Catholics what was the principal error that Our Lady was warning us about? I venture that most of them would say communism. But that, as I'm going to show you, is not really the root or the primary error that took root in Russia. 
the primary era that provided the foundation for communism, that gave conviction to the leaders of the communist revolution in Russia was evolutionism. Lenin was baptized, chrismated, communed, an Orthodox Christian, brought up in, a, in an Orthodox Christian home. But he became an atheist as a teenager because he became a convinced evolutionist. And after the Bolshevik Revolution, on his desk, he had this sculpture, a chimpanzee sitting on a pile of books, one of which is Darwin's Origin of Species, contemplating a human skull. And as Lenin sat at this desk, he authorized the murder of millions of his own fellow countrymen. Why? Because they stood in the way of evolutionary progress to the communist utopia. Stalin, who took the reins of power after Lenin, was actually educated in an orthodox monastic seminary. And while a seminarian, he was given or got hold of the works of Lyell and Darwin, became a com convinced atheist, started going around to the other seminarians. You have to read these books. The Bible's a pack of lies. There is no God. We're descended from apes. And Stalin was responsible for the murder of some 20 million human beings because they stood in the way of evolution to the communist utopia. Now, we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter specifically in a few minutes. But for those who are concerned about people of African origin, there's a very important lesson to be learned. You see, Stalin was convinced that Africans were less evolved than white Europeans or Slavic people. And he actually sent Ilya Ivanovich Ivanov to Africa to artificially inseminate chimpanzees with the seed of black African men. Why? Because he was convinced that Africans were much closer to the chimpanzees than white Europeans or Slavic people, and that if he could breed Africans with apes, he could create a race of animal men who would be the ideal soldiers. You could send them into battle like robots and not have to be concerned in any way for their welfare because they would just be animals. Now this is Stalin who is hailed as one of the great heroes of the Marxist historical Marxist movement. Yeah, I mean, at this point... the of Black Lives Matter say that they are Marxists. This summer, this summer when American cities were burning, when statues were coming down, when buildings were being renamed, the only statues going up around the world were of Stalin. I mean, this is very much current event. As we, as we live. And as you said, the, the founders of Black Lives Matter are on camera claiming to be Marxist trained. They're out and out open about it. So their followers need to understand that 
they consider Stalin to be a great man. But that great man thought it would be a wonderful thing to breed apes with Africans so that he could produce an army of ape men. Is that the kind of person that they want to follow? But that's not all that was going on under Stalin. Because, as many of our listeners, viewers know, when Bella Dodd returned to the Catholic faith of her ancestors through the influence of Archbishop Fulton Sheen, she testified, and there's absolutely no reason to doubt the truth of her testimony. She testified to Congress that over a thousand communists had been placed in Catholic seminaries to infiltrate and undermine the church from within. Well, what do you think was one of the central concepts that had been ingrained in those infiltrators? This is important because the damage that those infiltrators could do is in proportion to the potential for the errors that they brought with them to corrupt the faith. But how many people who speak about infiltration say even one word about the fact that the principal error that these people had been indoctrinated into and which they brought with them into the Catholic community to corrupt it from within was evolution. Yeah, yeah. And I know exactly what you're saying. There was a recent book put out about the infiltration of the Catholic Church. It does talk a lot about communism. I've read it twice. Didn't see the word evolution not one time. I mean, you're blowing my mind right now, Hugh. And this is not a knock against anybody. This is literally just—I wasn't aware that, as you said, Pashendi points to evolution as the heart of modernism— And all of us will say that modernism is the synthesis of all heresies. Few of us, and I wouldn't have before tonight, I wouldn't have said that evolution is the heart of modernism. Sorry, go ahead. Well, our Blessed Mother said that the errors would spread. And the Russian communists were the principal sponsors of Chinese communism. And what did Mao Zedong say? He said, the foundation of Chinese socialism rests on Darwin and the theory of evolution. Now, think about that. But while you're thinking about that, consider just for a moment, why is evolution the principal doctrine of the modernists? I just need to unpack that a little bit before we move on. The reason is, that every other heresy in the history of the church has taken some part of the faith and twisted it or added something or subtracted something, but has left most of the faith intact. Even the Protestant Revolution did that. With modernism, it's a totally different ballgame. Why? Because of what St. Pius X said. Modernism is based on the idea that everything is in flux. Everything is evolving. There are no stable natures. And so St. Pius X saw that this is different 
from every other heresy because if these people get control, they will destroy everything because they're going to say the liturgy that was good for our ancestors, it's no longer adequate because we've evolved into a new situation. The marriage law that was good for our forefathers, it's inadequate because we've evolved into a new situation. The doctrines of faith, the moral doctrine, it was good hundreds of years ago in that stage of evolution, but we've evolved into a new situation. We need to have a new doctrine, a new liturgy. Everything has to be new to be appropriate and adapted to the stage of evolution that we've reached. And that's why modernism is the synthesis of all heresies. But let's go on. You see, here's, if you can see the slide, it's a, I'm showing a picture of Bishop Cuthbert O'Gara, who was a passionist missionary bishop from Ireland in China when Mao's communist troops overran his diocese. And he watched as the communists would round up the adults in all the towns and force them to go into, a, into halls for a seminar. And he wondered, what is the seminar going to be? Is it going to be Mao? Is it going to be Marx, Lenin? It was always the same. The seminar was on evolution. You are a product of a material process of evolution. There is no God. There is no afterlife. There is no soul. There's nothing but matter. You are a product of a material process of evolution. And Bishop O'Gara realized this is the foundation. If they could get people to believe this, if they could get people to believe that science had proven this to be true, then they could easily accept the rest of the communist mumbo-jumbo. And of course, the errors of Russia spread, but took different forms. In Germany, Hitler believed that the Nazi party was going to bring evolution to the next stage. And he was supported by almost all of the German intellectual elite. Because ever since the end of the 19th century, thanks in large part to the incredibly effective propaganda efforts of Ernst Haeckel, virtually the whole German intellectual and military elite was 100% uh, evolutionist. In fact, the first genocide of the 20th century was not the Armenian genocide. It was the African genocide, as in the scramble for colonies, the German military moved into huge areas of Africa, what is now uh, Namibia, Cameroon, that part of Africa. And it's a matter of record that they practically exterminated whole tribes of Africans because the German military leaders believed that these people were just slightly above the level of apes. They were at a lower stage of evolution, and therefore if these people did not do exactly what they were told, they could be literally wiped off the face of the earth. 
And this was the mentality that Hitler embraced and which gave rise to the eugenics program that was implemented by Hitler and especially in the concentration camps. Dr. Mengele was typical of the German intellectuals who supported the Nazi eugenics program. And when he performed experiments on living human subjects in Auschwitz, he thought he was just being a good scientist because he was just doing evolution in the lab. As far as he was concerned, in nature, the fit are those who survive and that's how evolution evolution happens through this, the struggle for survival, the survival of the fittest. So as far as he was concerned, if he took a less evolved human, like a gypsy or an African or someone from Poland, stripped them naked, put them in freezing cold water and watched how long it took them to die, he could use that valuable scientific data so that when a higher, more highly evolved German Luftwaffe pilot was shot down over the North Sea, they could help him to survive. That wasn't wrong. That was just doing evolution in the lab. And of course, the reaction even of evolution-believing people today as well, that's, that's barbaric. We would never do anything like that. And yet it's a fact that, for example, uh, Dr. Francis Collins who was made the head of the NIH by Barack Obama, is on record as a born-again Christian being excited about the possibilities for scientific breakthroughs through what? Through embryonic stem cell research. So Francis Collins, a born-again Christian, founder of the Biologos think tank, which pours millions of dollars into Catholic and non-Catholic institutions to get them to promote theistic evolution is excited about taking the little bodies of little boys and girls and ripping them to pieces so that we can have wonderful new breakthroughs that will allow us to help less vulnerable human beings to live a better life. I just And we think we're morally superior to Dr. Mengele. I have to interject here just, just one point for the audience. I've, I've made in other points, uh, in other shows and, and on other channels, um, but a lot, I think a lot of folks who are watching right now are familiar with Dinesh D'Souza, the, um, the Indian gentleman who made the Obama movie and, and all this. He very famously came out with this paradigm shift, it sounded like a paradigm shift, it seemed like a paradigm shift when he announced it, that Nazism and communism are so often framed as the, you know, as the right, the extreme right versus the extreme left. And he said, no, they're both competing strains of leftism, competing for state control of your life, competing for uh, who, who can define atheism more extravagantly and more perfectly. And um, so I just I wanted to interject that not not to just say something, but just so that folks can understand what you're saying, that Hitler and Stalin, while they may have gone to war with each other, you know, you never fight anybody quite like you do in your own family. That's why civil wars are so gruesome, because you are you are fighting your brothers 
And that's what was happening, and that's why that front was particularly bloody, because they were competing forms of leftism, not opposite ends of the spectrum, like the mainstream media has convinced so many people that they are. Yes, they certainly shared the same kind of fundamental um, convictions, no doubt about it. And, and of course, um, Margaret Sanger was a great fan of the Nazi eugenics program because she believed that evolution was struggle for survival, survival of the fittest. And she was on record that black people were inferior, less evolved, and that birth control would be a wonderful way to eliminate black people from the population. And she saw that with governments like the government in Nazi Germany or here in the United States where so many states uh, passed laws making it possible to sterilize people against their will so that the less evolved people wouldn't be able to reproduce themselves, Margaret Sanger saw that with birth control, it would become possible for governments to prohibit the less evolved people from having children and only allow the more highly evolved people like herself, of course, to reproduce so that, in her charming phrase, we could get rid of the, quote, dead weight of human waste, unquote. Well, people who are sympathetic to Black Lives Matter ought to be very much aware that Black Lives Matter champions unrestricted abortion on demand, and yet they're following in the footsteps of somebody who wanted to see them eliminated from the face of the earth, and who succeeded very well because here in the United States, 300,000 black babies are murdered every year through surgical abortion. And that pales in comparison to the number of innocent black babies who are murdered through different forms of abortifacient contraception. So if you're in any way sympathetic to black lives uh, and to human lives, you ought to realize that black lives matter by their own stated uh, purposes, according to their own stated goals, is intent on continuing to propagate uh, and to enact laws which will continue to result in the mass murder of innocent black children. This obviously leads us into the discussion um, about the BLM movement. This is the, you know, I, I purposely designed the thumbnail for this show so that as many people would click on as possible. And here we are now more than two hours into the broadcast, and we've gone uh, a thousand years through history to get to the point to where we can bring to bear everything that Mr. Owen has communicated to us. And so now the question is, you know, it, you call it you know, molecules to man. I love that phrase. How does the molecules to man uh, play into the BLM movement? 
Um, and and ultimately, and perhaps in conjunction with, I I would say it's it's a it's a huge coincidence that we have an up uh, an, an insurgent uprising in the United States and Corona mania, pandemic, scamdemic. Um, happening at the same time it's like a one-two punch in an election year all seems skeptical to me but could you could you bring this molecules to man to bear against those two things that are just dominating everybody's minds now certainly but before i do that i just want to very briefly show the effect of these evolutionary errors on leaders within our catholic community because this is an important piece of the puzzle, and I don't want to leave it out, but I'll be very quick about it. Um, we we recall Bella Dodd's testimony in Congress that she knew of 1,100 people who were deliberately sent into seminaries to achieve leadership positions within the Catholic Church in this country to corrupt the Church from within. And every single one of them would have been thoroughly indoctrinated into the molecules to man evolutionary pseudoscience, but with a conviction that it was true and that science really supported it. Now, what's very important to understand is that one of the ways, and we could say perhaps the main way, that these people corrupted the church community from within. I will never say corrupted the church, because the church is the Immaculate Bride of Christ, and she is incorruptible. But the way that these people, more than any other, the way that they were able to corrupt the community, the Catholic community from within, was through their sexual immorality. The sexual immorality that they practiced, the sexual immorality that they promoted, the sexual immorality that they enabled, the sexual immorality that they turned a blind eye to. But what needs to be understood in that regard is that this plague of sexual abuse was made possible by evolutionary pseudoscience. This has to be understood. You see, Kinsey was a man brought up in a devout Protestant home here in the U.S., went to university still believing in, in Christianity, was indoctrinated into evolution, became a complete atheist, went to Harvard, got a PhD, and founded a new science, the science of perversion. Now, this new science of perversion was based firmly on Kinsey's complete belief in the molecules to man evolution mythology, because he held that back in the Middle Ages, people had this quaint notion that God created man as man and woman as woman, and from the very design of their bodies, you could see that there were certain kinds of behavior that were natural, normal, and good, and there were other kinds of behavior which were obviously unnatural, abnormal, and harmful. But thanks to evolution, Kinsey and his disciples could say, well, we can look at our cousins, the bonobos, the orangutans, the chimpanzees, and we see they do all this kind of behavior that back in the Middle Ages we thought was abnormal and un unnatural. So now thanks to evolution, 
we're liberated. And we can understand that this behavior is actually natural, normal, and good. Now, believe it or not, it was this very pseudoscience, evolution-based pseudoscience, that Kinsey presented to the Rockefeller Foundation so that he could obtain a generous grant of money to begin this new scientific study of perversion, in which he found people who were afflicted with various kinds of perversions, many of them from prison populations, paid them to perform their perverse acts, sometimes with children, and then fudged his data to make it seem that these perversities were much more common in the general population than they actually were. And with this evolution-based pseudoscience, he was able eventually to get the criminal code changed, to get the psychiatric code changed, and the criminal code changed. And now, in the church leadership, meanwhile, we had a whole generation of people who rose to very high positions in the church who swallowed this Kinsian evolution-based science of perversion, hook, line, and sinker, just as Father Rahner and the rest of his ilk swallowed the heckle fraud drawings of the human embryos, hook, line, and sinker. And it's, it's a toss-up which of the two deceptions has afflicted the Catholic population more gravely. But here we have a statement from Father Anthony Kosnick, the dean of a Catholic seminary here in the Midwest, at the height of the clergy sexual abuse that was going on in this country, who publishes an article in the Journal of the Catholic Theological Society of America and reaches this conclusion. He says, quote, At this time, the behavioral sciences have not identified any sexual expression that can be empirically demonstrated to be of itself in a culture-free way detrimental to a full human existence. So here we have the rector of a Catholic seminary charged with the formation of future priests and bishops saying, science has proven there's nothing you can do that is really harmful of a sexual nature. And that's not all. Here we have Bishop James McHugh put in charge of family life matters for the entire United States Bishops Conference, who decides to work hand-in-hand with Planned Parenthood sex educators to develop mandatory sex education programs for Catholic schools. How is this possible? How is it possible that a successor of the Apostles works hand-in-hand with the foremost enemies of human life and decency to design curricula to be forced upon Catholic children in Catholic schools. Well, you only have to read Bishop McHugh's ramblings to understand that it all comes back to evolution. Because in this statement that I have quoted here 
which you'll be able to see if you can go to the YouTube, Bishop McHugh makes a statement which is something of gobbledygook, but I can translate it into plain English without doing any violence to his intended meaning. And basically what he's saying is this. You can check it out for yourself. What he's basically saying is, the union between man at the stage of evolution that we have reached is the normal way that children come into the world. But, he says, we cannot rule out that there won't be what he calls wonderful evolutionary breakthroughs that are even beyond our imagination so that children can come into the world some other way. So you see what's happened. What's undoubtedly happened is that in all likelihood, when Bishop McHugh was in seminary back in the 40s, his professors told him, look, gentlemen, Genesis is a myth, it's a poem, it's an allegory. Science has proven that we evolved from molecules, we evolved, life evolved, and yeah. we ev the, the humans evolved from subhuman primates. Adam and Eve symbolize those first humans. They're not real people, they didn't really exist. So, as Bishop McHugh becomes a bishop, he's convinced Adam and Eve didn't really exist. Mm -hmm. Evolution is the truth. Therefore, the union between man and woman, it's not something that God ordained. Mm -hmm. It's something that evolved. And therefore, as evolution continues, we could find children, other ways to bring children into the world. So what has he done? Well, this this he is has an especially pernicious, I know you're going you're gonna to talk about one of the pernicious errors, but what comes to mind to me immediately, Hugh, especially as traditional Catholics who understand that the purpose of marriage is to, re is to create children. That's the foremost yes. perfect, I mean, now in the 1983 catechism, it's almost set up as though, you know, having fun with your wife or husband is, is like on par with the procreative act, but the purpose of marriage is the procreative act. And now he's, he's divorcing the purpose of marriage from the procreative act. He's saying those are two separate things. And we now saw that, uh, you know, he, he was teaching in the forties, just a generation after that it's enshrined in the catechism. Yes. And, and, and you've said it. That's really the key point. And Jesus, our Lord, said, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, not even a bishop of the Catholic Church. And what Bishop McHugh has done, because he believes in this molecules-to-man evolution mythology, and only because he believes in that, he has separated what God has joined together the procreative and the unitive dimensions of the marital union. And that has destroyed the innocence and the formation of most of our Catholic youth now for 40, 50 years. And, and here's what it culminates in. I'm sure our listeners, viewers, remember the Synod and the Family. And you probably remember that Pope Francis appointed Cardinal Baldessari to be the moderator of the Synod. And you, you recall that whereas back in 1880, Pope Leo XIII wrote an entire encyclical on holy marriage, 
in which he told the bishops of the whole world, you have to defend holy marriage on this foundation. And he says in, in Arcanum Divine, Pope Leo XIII writes, we recall what is known to all and cannot be denied by anyone that God on the sixth day of creation, having formed man from the slime of the earth and having breathed into his face the breath of life, gave him a companion whom he miraculously brought forth from the side of Adam while he was locked in sleep. And Pope Leo says, you can only defend holy marriage on this foundation. In other words, from the beginning of the world, God created one man for one woman for life. That's it. Because Pope Leo saw the Freemasons and the communists and their allies were already trying to destroy the foundations of Catholic civilization by introducing legal divorce into countries like Italy where it was prohibited by law. But in this synod, I read every intervention that was released to the public that I could get my hands on. I did not see one single bishop or delegate to that synod who even referenced the creation of Adam and Eve as the foundation of the church's teaching on holy marriage. Instead, there was a tremendous amount of time taken up with how can we find a way to give Holy Communion to people who were married in the church, separated, married outside the church, and now they feel very left out? Or how can we find a way to give Holy Communion to homosexuals, active homosexuals? And so members of the Catholic press confronted Cardinal Baldessari at one point, and they asked him, Your Eminence, how can you be spending so much time talking about things like how can we find a way to give Holy Communion to people who were married in the church and married somebody else outside the church and now they feel left out, or, or, or homosexuals who are active homosexuals. And you know what his answer was? He said, there's no reason to be scandalized that there is a cardinal or a theologian saying something different from the so-called common doctrine. That doesn't imply a going against it means reflecting, because dogma has its own evolution. That is a development, not a change. There you have it. Wow. So that wow. if you believe, if you can believe that a reptile can change into a bird, that a land mammal can become a whale, that a microbe can become a human being, then you can definitely believe that a doctrine that says that a certain kind of behavior is intrinsically evil, can evolve into the understanding that that behavior actually has positive aspects which should be welcomed and somehow even integrated into the life of the church. That's what happens when people accept this evolutionary pseudoscience as if it were fact and real science. And before we get specifically to, to Black Lives Matter and related contemporary issues, I, I have to add this one uh, final point, because Cardinal Pell, and we know that he has been subjected to a terrible injustice, and I'm not saying anything against him personally, really, by using this example, but I am just trying to make 
a point that has to be made to the traditional Catholics throughout the world so that it's clearly understood. Cardinal Pell was held up during the Synod as one of the few church leaders who tried to defend the traditional Catholic understanding of marriage. And yet, in a televised debate with Richard Dawkins, Cardinal Pell made this statement. He said, the account of Adam and Eve is, quote, a very sophisticated mythology to try to explain the evil and the suffering in the world. It's certainly not a scientific truth. It's a religious story told for religious purposes. Now, remember, Pope Leo XIII, in an entire encyclical devoted to holy marriage, said to the bishops of the whole world, you can only defend holy marriage on the foundation that God created Adam on the sixth day and created Eve from his side, one man for one woman for life from the beginning of creation. And yet here, one of the traditional defenders of marriage says that Adam and Eve is a myth. Well, what did Richard Dawkins do with that? He had a field day. So the story of Adam and Eve was only symbolic. So to impress himself, Jesus had himself tortured and executed in vicarious punishment for a symbolic sin committed by a non-existent individual, as I said, barking mad, as well as viciously unpleasant. And here's the point. I don't want to know how many thousands of Catholic young people lost their faith after watching that debate. That, that debate. But I know from having traveled extensively throughout this country and around the world that this is the number one reason that Catholic young people are leaving the Catholic Church in droves. Because our own church leaders have taught them that human science is exalted above theology and above the tradition of the church. And so young people, not being fools, not being stupid, conclude that if natural science could correct the church in regard to the origins of man and the universe, then obviously the natural scientists are the ones who know what they're talking about. And therefore, the young people follow the Pied Pipers of secular humanism right out of the Catholic Church because of the teaching that they've received from their own church leaders. And yet, it's all for nothing. Because the real science has always confirmed the literal historical truth of the sacred history of Genesis. And at the very time when Cardinal Baldessari was saying, we're just, we've just evolved into this new understanding and we're not contradicting anything from the past, we held jointly with Human Life International a symposium in Rome on the theme, the special creation of Adam and Eve, foundation of the church's teaching on holy marriage. And to that symposium came one of the most famous plant geneticists in the entire world, Dr. John Sanford, 
who proved that cutting-edge genetics confirms the creation, the descent of every human being on earth from one man and one woman who were created in a state of genetic perfection less than 10,000 years ago. And we'll just fly through this and then we're on to Black Lives Matter and we'll be done. Dr. Sanford pointed out that in recent years, geneticists have been able to study the mitochondrial DNA, which is passed from mother to daughter, and they've been able to study it from women in women from every major people group in the entire world. And what the scientists have discovered is that there's very little difference in the mitochondrial DNA in any woman on earth, whether it's a Chinese, African, Eskimo, Caucasian, European, it doesn't matter. They're very, very much almost the same. And to their astonishment, they discovered that there are very few mutations on average in the mitochondrial DNA. And when they look at the mutation rate in the mitochondrial DNA and they do a simple calculation using a standard generation time, they conclude that every woman on earth is descended from what they call mitochondrial Eve, a woman who lived about 6,000 years ago. Now, obviously, this isn't an exact science because we have no way of going back into the past and measuring the mutation rate at other points in history. It could have been faster. It could have been slower. But the point is, the real science shows that all women are descended from one woman who lived thousands of years ago, not tens or hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago. What about Adam? Dr. Sanford pointed out that scientists have also studied the Y chromosome, which is passed from father to son in men from every major people group on Earth. And again, they found that the Y chromosome is very homogeneous. There's very little variation. And when you look at the mutations in the Y chromosome and the rate of mutation, and you take a standard generation time, it's easy to calculate that every man on Earth today is descended from one man who lived about 6,000 years ago. And since mutations corrupt genetic information, it is also a logical conclusion that Adam and Eve were much closer to genetic perfection than human beings living today. So in other words, cutting-edge genetics perfectly agrees with the sacred history of Genesis. And Dr. Sanford went on to point out that if you plot the lifespans of the patriarchs in Genesis 1 to 11, they agree perfectly with cutting-edge genetics because you have Adam and Eve created genetically perfect, then you have the original sin, so you begin to have the harmful mutations creeping into the human genome. But for the first few generations, people are still able to live seven, eight, nine hundred years. That's not at all surprising. But then at the time of the flood, you have a very sharp decline in longevity. And that, again, makes perfect sense in the light of cutting-edge genetics, because everyone on Earth is wiped out except for the members of Noah's family, and all the genetic mutations that have accumulated 
in their genes are now fixed in the human race forever and there's a lot of radioactivity that's released during the cataclysm of the flood and degradation of the environment which also logically contributes to that precipitous decline in longevity. So again, Dr. Sanford points out that the information in Genesis with regard to the lifespans of the patriarchs fits perfectly with what we know of genetics in the 21st century. And the last thing I'm going to say about this is that the same points that Dr. Sanford made are being acknowledged by scientists in the mainstream. But when this information is given to students, whether it be in Catholic schools or non-Catholic schools, public schools, they would generally be told something like this. Well, yes, there is evidence that all people on earth are descended from this Y chromosome atom and this mitochondrial Eve. But students, you need to understand this has nothing to do with the myths in Genesis. What happened was we had hundreds of thousands or millions of years of evolution from subhuman primate populations. But then at a certain point, students, there was a combination of factors, natural disasters, pestilence, tribal warfare, what have you. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the population was reduced way, way down to almost nothing. And boys and girls, that's why everyone on Earth today is descended from Y chromosome, Adam and mitochondrial Eve. It doesn't have anything to do with those fairy tales in the book of Genesis. But what these teachers are either willfully or ignorantly failing to acknowledge is that since mutations destroy genetic information, had there been the mythical hundreds of thousands or millions of years of evolution leading up to Y chromosome Adam and mitochondrial Eve, by the time they came on the scene, they would have been so genetically degraded that they wouldn't have been capable of even having a single viable offspring. So the fact of the matter is, the explanation that makes the most sense is the straightforward, literal, historical interpretation of the sacred history of Genesis. So let's get to the conclusion. How does a belief in this molecules-to-man evolution myth play into the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, let's get right to the point. Patrice Colors, the co-foundress of BLM, says that she and Alicia Garza, one of the co-foundresses, she says, we are trained Marxists. Well, ipso facto, this means that they are committed evolutionists, because we saw that as far as Karl Marx was concerned, Darwinian evolution, the molecules to man materialistic explanation for the origins of man in the universe was absolutely necessary to make his Marxist ideology credible. So if Patrice and Alicia are trained Marxists, they are necessarily committed evolutionists. And that's where the irony begins. Mm -hmm. Because from day one, the 
acceptance of molecules to man evolution has been linked to racism. And the victims, the, the, the primary victims of evolution-based racism have been black Africans and people of African descent. So nothing could be more heartbreakingly ironic than that the founders of Black Lives Matter would be committed evolutionists yeah. who subscribe to an ideology that has been responsible for untold atrocities committed against Africans and people of African descent. But that's not all. As committed Marxists, Black Lives, at least the self-identified founders or foundresses and spokespeople for Black Lives Matter are committed to the destruction of patriarchy and of the traditional family with husband, wife, and children. And here again, in the name of protecting black lives and the dignity of black people, they are advocating an, a, a policy that is totally suicidal for the very community that they're claiming to represent. Because it was documented very thoroughly by Senator Moynihan back in the 1960s that strong traditional families were propelling black citizens in the United States out of, pro out of poverty into prosperity in large numbers. And, that, and it's been very well documented that the introduction of welfare programs and incentives that encourage people, women in particular, to not marry and to not have a traditional family have produced the disintegration of social life in many black communities throughout the United States. And of course, when a person rejects the traditional family with man as the spiritual head of the family, the wife as the heart of the family, and the children of the fr as the fruit of the love of a totally committed husband and wife, they're not going against some man-made construct. They're going against the creator of the universe. And this has to be understood, that evolution denies what God has revealed about how he created human beings and instituted marriage directly by his supernatural action. And it is, it is important to recognize that God created Adam first because he created Adam to be the head of his wife and the whole human family. And he created Eve from Adam's side, as the fathers teach, as the popes have taught, to show that Eve is to be the heart of the family. That's why she's created from near the heart of Adam, to be the heart of the family. And this is the relationship that has to exist so that you can have a happy, healthy, holy, domestic church. 
Now, it has been proven again and again that when people of any ethnic background, including the black citizens of this country, follow God's plan for marriage, the results are prosperity, health, happiness, high levels of achievement in education, in business, in professional achievement, as we see in, in people like Dr. Ben Carson. But when these God-ordained principles and guidelines for establishing domestic churches are violated, we see the terrible consequences for the offspring. So in the name of defending black lives, in the name of defending the dignity of people of African descent, because of the commitment these people have to evolution-based Marxism, they are destroying the very things that God has ordained for the protection, the dignity, the upbuilding, the sanctification and salvation of the very people that they are allegedly trying to protect and defend. Can we let's discuss that for a second? Um, because I think so many people who are observing what's happening in the Union uh, and around the world are correctly observing that to the extent there has been a history of racism in the United States, that the Black Lives Matter movement in particular is overcorrecting for that. And it almost seems as though the purveyors of BLM are, are absolutely aware of the irony um, and are absolutely uh, trained evolutionists. They just happen to believe that they are the most evolved and that it is the whites who are the least evolved that I think that could be a plausible explanation for why so many people see this overcorrection and, and, and perceive it. What do you think? I, I tend to think that because of the, that, that there's another dimension to their evolutionism that actually comes into play in the answer to your question. And that is the occult connection. I believe it's been well documented that at many of these BLM gatherings, they will invoke the spirits of people who have been part of the movement before, and that yeah. um, they they are clearly uh, calling upon these spirit forces to aid them. And what this is. What this suggests to me is that they have embraced evolutionism, mm -hmm. which began uh, in, in, in Darwin as a purely materialistic hypothesis or conjecture. But it's always been connected and, and had a, a, a kind of relationship with occult philosophies. And, uh, and so what I think we can see is that they think of themselves as being kind of the enlightened ones, but I don't think that they necessarily believe that um, black people are exclusively 
enlightened, but that because they were um, the victims of oppression and prejudice, somehow they have you know a special rule, a special role to play in this movement to right all wrongs and establish utopia on earth. But but I think that they believe that that there's uh, that there are people who have this uh, kind of spiritual anointing that makes them able to lead this movement. And I don't get the impression that they necessarily associate that exclusively with having a certain color of skin, and but that it's, it's something that 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 is is uh, of an occult nature um and this is one of the things that makes the movement particularly dangerous for people who may get involved just out of ignorance and naivete not realizing what they're really getting involved with because they are definitely going to be opening themselves up to the demonic forces that makes sense um i I had tried to jump the gun earlier, and I apologize, but I do want to move uh, into the coronavirus. What we did see was a was an unprecedented collapse of the Catholic Church around the world, um, especially in the United States, on the 50th anniversary to the day, the Jubilee year of the implementation of the Novus Ordo Mise in the United States from, uh, from Palm Sunday, March 22nd, 1970, to March 22nd, also in Lent, uh, 2020, 50 years later to the day, uh, is what I've been calling Black Sunday. It's when all the masses in the world and in the United States were canceled because of coronavirus. You saw, Hugh, and I don't want to steal too much of your thunder, but you saw that bishops cared more about your bodies than your souls. They placed science uh, upon their altars. They are uh, essentially naturalists and disbelieve in the supernatural. Um, is there a link between what we've been talking about today with the era of evolutionism and the hysteria uh, and the coronavirus, both within the church and within the culture at large? Yes. I mean, you mentioned a lot of very important points, and we've already kept our audience a very long time. So I'd like to just emphasize one or two things, because um, you've already mentioned a number of other points that you've probably already addressed in, in other programs. But the thing that I'd really like to emphasize is the way that the idea of evolution as a, a, a scientifically proven theory has created a certain atmosphere within the Catholic community without which this disgraceful episode of abject submission to civil authorities making outrageous dis demands and placing absurd and unreasonable, not to say in some cases sacrilegious restrictions upon Catholic worship would never have been possible. And I, I say this as somebody who first of all grew up in an atmosphere where molecules to man evolution was a sacred dogma that was never questioned. I went to what were considered 
some of the greatest schools and educational institutions in the world. I've been around people educated in the most prestigious academic institutions in the world all my life. And the, the dogma of molecules to man evolution is sacred in these circles. It's not questioned. In my entire education through graduate school, I never heard a single question raised about molecules to man evolution in the sense of questioning its, its uh, validity. And so what, what I noticed is when I came into the Catholic Church, the same kind of aura surrounded this molecules to man hypothesis, but with a veneer of Catholicism or with a kind of um, a schizophrenic um, coupling together of the molecules to man evolutions, you know, science in quotation marks with the rest of the, the Catholic faith that could somehow be coupled together with it. And from the time that we started the Kolbe Center, I have seen how the biggest obstacle to restoring the foundations of the faith is not the brilliant arguments that can be marshaled in defense of theistic evolution. It's the censorship, the bullying, and the intimidation that is, be a is able to silence the proclamation of the authentic Catholic doctrine of creation. And we've seen that there's a preternatural dimension to this because it's very common for us, for example, to be told that one of our members has gone to a pastor who's a very good priest and very kind and, and, and traditional in every respect, apparently, and, and the person will the parishioner who's a very faithful parishioner will ask if he could share some information about seminars which are available which at no cost to the parish which would present the traditional doctrine of the church on creation and the the pastor flies into a rage acts in a way which is completely out of character and throws the person out of his office this kind of thing happens on a regular basis. Sure. It also happens that uh, someone in authority will give permission for a seminar to be given, but then somebody that he knows will call him up and ridicule him for allowing some stupid fundamentalists to come into his parish or to use his hall or whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. and the thing is canceled. And, I mean, I could go on all night telling stories like this, but what is the point? The point is that in all of these instances, there's never any discussion. There's never any dialogue. There's never any 
actual setting forth of arguments pro and con. It's just you're shut down and you're made to feel that you are doing something wrong if you even allow this kind of criticism of evolution to be aired in a public forum within a Catholic institution. So this is clearly creating, has created an atmosphere in which those who present themselves as the experts in matters scientific and medical can easily intimidate church leaders. Yep. Because, I mean, church, the church leadership, with notable exceptions, but few, unfortunately, has a, a, they have allowed themselves to be intimidated by the promoters of theistic evolution for 50, 60, 70 years now. And so there's already a very, very, it's, it's kind of an unwritten law that we defer to the experts in science when they are convinced that X, Y, or Z is true. And we will accommodate to them in whatever way we have to. And that I would submit that decades of this kind of uh, submission of this kind of exaltation of fallible human science above the queen of the sciences theology and her handmade philosophy have set the stage for this disgraceful scene that we have had to witness over the last several months because the experts have just come forward showing themselves in almost every case to be totally incompetent from the get-go and yet they have been able to win from church leaders almost 100% abject compliance mm -hmm. to every single one of their outrageous demands. Mm -hmm. So I believe that the more Catholics recognize that the emperor of evolution is not wearing any clothes, the more and the more church leaders who are emboldened to join the chorus of voices saying the emperor of evolution is naked, the more you're going to see resistance, intelligent, principled, Holy Ghost-driven, God-anointed resistance to unjust encroachments upon the dignity and the liberty of Holy Church. But there's one other thing that I would like to touch upon before we sign off, and that is the way that the current corona mania is setting the stage for a mad push, and I do mean mad as in insane push, for a mandatory vaccination program. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Gates and his ilk have plans for us, and of course we're living through some of their plans for us right now, but they have other plans for us, and one of those plans 
is that every single man, woman, and child on the face of the earth should be forced to receive one of their one or more of their vaccines to protect us from COVID or from some other um, threat to our well-being, which is going to require, according to them, that we must have a vaccination that they will provide for us. And what I want to announce to your audience, and I would like to ask your help and their help in spreading the word about this, is that for quite some time, one of our experts in biology who has a lot of professional experience in vaccine development has written a book which we are about to publish on vaccination from a Catholic perspective. This is a book that needs to be in the hands of every single Catholic bishop, church leader, parent, teacher, person who has any kind of responsibility in the Catholic community whatsoever. Because this book is a very thorough, balanced treatment of the subject by a person eminently qualified to speak on it. And it shows, it documents, it proves that the science behind vaccination as it's currently administered is woefully inadequate and that there are horrendous risks associated with the vaccines that they are developing now for coronaviruses. Mm -hmm. And every Catholic parent, teacher, administrator, bishop, leader needs to understand the information in this book. This book is not a dogmatic anti-vaccine tract. The author does not take the position that vaccination per se is wrong or intrinsically evil. But she, but she shows the true history of vaccination. She shows problems that have been associated with vaccination from the beginning, which are rarely, if ever, mentioned in standard science textbooks or in the mainstream media. Are, are you able and to give the, us the title of the book at this point, or, or did you, or when you said it was on vaccinations from a Catholic perspective, is that the title? I think it's going to have a very man, mundane title, Vaccination, a Catholic Perspective. Okay. I'm not 100% certain, but I think that's what it is, and I think that's just what we're probably going to end up calling it. Um, but one of the points that the author makes is that vaccination, as it was pioneered by people like, like Jenner, was the product of an evolutionary way of thinking of an enlightenment philosophy-driven way of thinking about human beings, mm -hmm. which reduced them to 
a bundle of matter and energy, a kind of a machine, and which looked at the human body as a collection of parts so that from the very beginning, the, the mentality of the pioneers of vaccination was one that looked at specific infectious diseases, specific threats to the human body, and then tried to find ways to respond to those specific threats without any regard in most cases for the whole human person, body and soul, or even for the whole body, and without any serious concern for the effect of the vaccination on the whole body, the whole human being, mm -hmm. rather just looking for one specific result, the production of antibodies, even not looking at the whole immune system and how this bypassing of the front lines of the immune system to produce antibodies against a specific kind of infection in a way that is not natural could have and undoubtedly does have unintended consequences for the rest of the immune system and for the whole human organism. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that this would never have happened had the intellectual leadership of the Western world held fast to the traditional Catholic doctrine of creation. Because in our traditional doctrine, we understand that God created all the different kinds of plants, animals, and Adam and Eve as wholes, as perfect organic wholes from day one. He didn't cobble them together part by part over millions of years. And so if you want to understand the functioning of the human body from a Catholic perspective, you have to look at that whole human person, body and soul. The Enlightenment philosophers, especially beginning with Descartes, rejected that traditional Catholic philosophy of the scholastics, which looked at everything in nature in terms of material, efficient, formal, and final causes, and said, we don't need to think about these formal and final causes anymore. Mm -hmm. We just want to look at material and efficient causes, things that we can quantify, things that we can measure, things that we can put into some kind of mathematical formula. And as a result, they paved the way for this very impoverished vision of humanity, which led directly to some very short-sighted, and I would argue immoral practices on the part of Jenner and the pioneers of vaccination, who were just looking at the human body as if it was a collection of parts yeah. and at vaccination as a way of dealing with one specific threat as if 
to the body as if it could be dealt with in isolation from the whole. And we submit that it's only by returning to the traditional Catholic philosophy and the scholastic tradition and the traditional Catholic doctrine of creation, which tells us that God created Adam and Eve whole, genetically perfect, and um, you know, fearfully and wonderfully made from the beginning, that we're going to be able to take a new look at infectious disease and understand better how to protect against it. Because the, 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 the people who are pushing for the vaccine, you never hear them talk about the incredible design of the immune system which is God's design, or how we can build up our God-given immune system, which is the way that God has given us to protect ourselves against infectious disease. They're always touting their man-made solutions to every problem right. because they don't think that the human being is fearfully and wonderfully made. They think that we're the product of hundreds of millions of years of mutation and natural selection. Yes, and, and now to correct the imperfection of our design by God, we have to wear masks. Uh, we have exactly. to wear a face muzzle because God should have created us with with a mask on our face already to protect us from uh, the terrible uh, viruses that are out there. But we can we can make up for that by uh, by self uh, mutilating our faces. The 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 variations on the theme are endless mm -hmm. but i really believe that that readers viewers listeners who purchase this book which we will announce through our our website god willing uh in the next month 4 to 6 weeks okay. that it's available um i think they will see that if we go back to the traditional catholic philosophy of the scholastic tradition and if we restore and reaffirm and defend the traditional doctrine of creation, we will have the perfect framework to address any public health emergency in a godly way and in a way that maintains the proper hierarchy of the sciences, that keeps theology as the queen, philosophy as their handmaid, and the natural sciences in their proper places – and which never allows anyone in a position of leadership to exalt the natural goods of life above the supernatural goods. Mm. Mr. Owen, it's been a pleasure having you more than three hours of your time. Your time is extremely valuable that you would deign uh, to give those precious moments to us here at Restoring the Faith is, is a truly an honor. We've heard a wide ranging podcast from you. Um, we talked about evolution leading to all kinds of things. Just a, a quick list I've been keeping for these last three hours. It leads to anti-scholasticism and heresy schism. It leads to sacrilegious reactions to COVID. It leads to communism, to Nazism, uh, to improper use of vaccines and public health crises, to perversion and gender ideology, to uh, abortion, euthanasia, you really are sitting at the root of 
uh, all of the modernist assaults on the family, the faith, the culture. Um, and I, I just want to com- commend you on your work. The Colbay Center, you can, you can just Google. You can find uh, Mr. Owen's website at the Colbay Center. Foundations Restored, 13 episodes. You can watch the first two episodes free online, 18 and a half hours of content. It covers everything from philosophy to theology, natural sciences. Everybody I know that has watched the entire 18 and a half hours has been converted and cured of this error. <laughs> yes. So th- well, thank you so much. I'm very grateful that you gave me as much time as as you did because it's simply not possible to cover the main points even on this topic sure. without taking time to do it. Sure. Well, if you're watching right now, please, 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 in order for more people to see this content and to experience what you've been able to experience and to hear what Mr. Owen was able to say to you, like this video and share it with your friends. I'm not saying that to self-promote. This video is not monetized. I'm not making a dime on it. Uh, YouTube would never monetize a video like this. This is what we have to spread. This is how we can reclaim our faith and reclaim our country. God bless you, all of you. Thank you for joining us, and good night. Mm